What truly matters is teachers' expertise. The most important tip for new teachers is to set out your boundaries. 44% of jobs will be automated. It reinforces cycles of disadvantage. Hello listeners and lovers of learning and welcome to episode 37 of the Education Research Reading Room, the podcast that brings you into the discussion with inspiring educators and education researchers. I'm Ollie Lovell and it's a pleasure to be your host in the ERRR. I'll start today by acknowledging the Woiwurrung and Boonwurrung people of the Kulin Nation on whose lands this podcast was recorded and pay respects to Elders past, present and emerging as well as to any Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander people who may be listening today. Today we're speaking with John Hollingsworth. John is the president and co-founder of DataWorks. He has a varied background as a systems analyst, engineer and musician and has had a long and influential career along with his wife, Dr. Sylvia Ybarra, focused on transforming the lives of teachers and students across the United States and the world. As the inventors of explicit direct instruction, a process that you'll be hearing all about in this episode, John and Sylvia have aimed to operationalise much of their education research from their intellectual forebears, such as Barack Rosenshine, Madeleine Hunter and others, to present teachers with a highly structured and actionable approach to classroom instruction. In this episode, John and I speak in great detail about the many ideas central to explicit direct instruction, and instruction more broadly, such as, how should I create a learning intention from a content standard? How can I activate prior knowledge? What are the best ways to check for understanding? And how do I react when a student gets an answer wrong in my class? This was for me a deep and exciting pedagogical discussion, and I hope that you take as much from it as I did. A reminder that, if you're keen to, you can jump onto ollilovell.com and sign up for the mailing list through which I share blogs, podcasts, and more from the world of education. And if you'd like to support the ongoing production of the podcast and help cover costs such as purchasing the books for the show, audio engineering, and web hosting, you can jump onto patreon.com forward slash E-R-R-R to do so. And with that, dear listeners, let's jump straight into episode 37 of the ERRR podcast with John Hollingsworth. John Hollingsworth, welcome to the Education Research Reading Room. Well, actually, I'm glad to be here. And you've sent me a lot of great questions about education. In fact, you know a lot yourself. Well, I look forward to chatting more about it as we go through. The first question we ask usually, John, is if someone meets you, you meet someone new and they say, hey, John, what is it that you do? What's your answer? Well, our basic answer is we're trying to improve student learning. But our approach is by optimizing classroom instruction. And you'd be surprised, schools do all kinds of reforms. They do after-school programs, they buy new books, and sometimes they forget to look at classroom instruction. Mm. So nothing helps kids learn more than effective instruction. Okay. So what do you believe, and this is a question I asked to kind of set the scene a little bit, what do you believe should be the purpose of school-based education? Well, every school now, reform is to be what? Productive member of the 21st century. Okay. And to change, to be in the changing society. But I can tell you what we do. We work a lot with the low-income students and areas of poverty. Mm-hmm. And I think everyone will agree that education is kind of the ticket out of poverty. You need to know something to get a better job than just a generic low-level job that a lot of people can do. And education is basically the route, I think every politician will agree, to get you out of poverty. Mm-hmm. So sometimes I'm trying to think at a big level, what we're really trying to do is improve the lives of students. Okay, sure. I might dig into that a little bit more because in your book, you do refer to kind of tests and improving test scores 
quite frequently. So how do you see, or what link do you see between students doing better on tests and having tickets out of poverty? Well, that battle of the test scores is every place. You've got the NAPLIN test. We've got our tests here. We've done a lot of work in Australia. Raising the NAPLIN is a big goal a yeah. lot of times. And then people will say you're trying to teach to the test. Actually, nobody can teach to the test. You're trying to teach the content that's being tested and be in sync with the way it's being tested, the type of questions. And now, do you have tests online now? Or are they paper pencil tests? There's been some trials of NAPLAN online. Yeah, it's going to go that route. The United States is almost completely online now. Our schools used to get tests on pallets with trucks, just the sheer paper of it. That, that's not going to work anymore. And I agree with that. So students need to be ready to take them online. And they need to be ready to type a question. Let me show, tell you one very interesting question. Usually you see multiple choice. Pick A, B, C, or D as the answer. One of the big things now in the U.S. testing is more than one correct answer. And it just raises the whole level of thinking on the test. It's not just eliminating right wing, making a guess, using a strategy. It's actually understanding the content more. So once we saw that, we've done a lot of test analysis. I don't know if you mentioned my company, DataWorks Educational Research in California. <laughs> But we've done a lot of test analysis. And so, like we started out doing test analysis, but what we tell teachers now is you're just, you need to get the content that's on the test and then you need to teach in the style as a practical matter. So if they have multiple correct answers, you need to have multiple correct answers now on your test also. Like with the schools that you've worked with and the ones that you've helped to raise test scores, have you seen that that is, seems to be a ticket for them out of poverty or help them in that way? Well, I can't say that I've ever followed up with a school that we taught, you know, 10 years ago to where the students are. That's really a study beyond us. We've done certain studies of comparing test scores at our schools to other schools. And I'm going to have to tell you, as a practical matter, most schools call us because of low test scores. I mean, that's the, the goal why people kind of call us. They want to improve the, you know, improve the learning for their students. Don, could you give us a bit of history of your career to date? Well, I think you know that I'm not the only one. It's my wife, Sylvia Ibarra, is the other half, Dr. Sylvia Ibarra, by the way. And so she was actually a science scientist in LA, and she did quality control for science labs. And then when we moved to Fresno, there weren't any science jobs. Fresno's a 500,000 population, but it's kind of an agriculture sometimes area, but it doesn't have industry like LA does. So she couldn't get a job, and people said, you could go back and be a teacher in school. And they're looking for teachers, and especially female teachers. So she became a high school physics and chemistry teacher. And you're a physics teacher, aren't you? Correct. Yeah, she could. Uh, we'll try to share some physics stories. <laughs> so she became a teacher, and she started getting grants. She wrote grants. She got a big grant. Within a couple of years, of, she became a principal of her own school. Her own school was an experimental school within a school, which led to her doctoral dissertation, which was her school versus the rest of the schools, a very, you know, the experimental group and the control group. Then she became a school principal and I don't know if you use the term a superintendent, but in charge of a district with like 10 or 15 schools. So she was number two, the assistant superintendent. And then we sort of started DataWorks on the side and she didn't think she could quit her job. <laughs> so I kind of started initially, I was doing the work. And her dissertation was testing, you know, comparing test scores, her group versus the whole school. So some other schools saw that and said, can you come up and make some sense out of our test scores? So we started analyzing tests and disaggregating test scores. You know, that's the social group, male, female, different backgrounds. I'm telling you, within a couple of years, we were working with 600 schools. 
No, I want you to think about this because this, this is an important point. We were measuring outcomes, weren't we? That's the test scores. And one day a teacher held up my beautiful graphs, a principle of all, you know, the test scores, the color graphs and everything. It said, don't show me the test scores. Show me how to raise the test scores. Yeah, okay. I mean, I dropped the book and I looked at Sylvia and said, we're in the wrong business. Do you raise test scores by testing students or by teaching students? It's teaching, isn't it? Okay. Mm. So if we said, Sylvia, we're looking at the wrong thing. We're looking at the outcome. We need to start working on instruction and, and you know, teaching. And that was really our one of our very first shifts. That's the background of Sylvia's background. <laughs> sure. I'll just give you a couple of mine. My, my background is actually engineering. And when we started DataWorks, we were doing that test analysis, right? Mm-hmm. And it was a computer program. We even got, I don't know if you remember the old mag tapes, those big tapes like you see in sci-fi movies, uh, probably like way back. Before my time. Okay. Anyway, we were, we could get raw test data and then read the data from companies and make sense out of it. And there was no programmers that could do it. And I had the programming background and I could analyze the test scores. And really, we became a, a company of programmers to analyze test scores. But that all switched when we said we now need to look at instruction. Okay. And the story you just told about, you know, testing students doesn't raise test scores. It relates to a distinction you draw in the book, which is talent discovery versus talent development. Do you want to talk to that distinction a little bit? Oh, yeah. We have a lot of little buzzwords in that book. Schools will go up and they'll put the great writing samples. Look at our great writers. Look at these paragraphs, the little essays the students are writing. And I said, that's talent discovery. You just discovered some good writers in your school but you didn't actually teach them to be better writers. So talent development is, did you put some practices in there that the students that I can see when I look at all, all the lessons, I'll see some type of strategy in there. So talent development is not finding good students, it's what developing the ability of all the students. Makes sense. Now, from that point where you were looking at, from that day that you dropped the book and you decided we're in the wrong business, somehow you've ended up at the point where now you've got this book about explicit direct instruction. It's very popular. I wanted to go back to the genesis of EDI. And I can do this through two questions that came through on Twitter. So the first question is by Reed Smith. And he asked, I'd like to know the genesis of EDI. Is it rooted in previous iterations and related research? For example, Brophy and Good, Rosenshine, Archer, etc. Or was it an example of parallel evolution? And Laura Johnson adds, you know, did you refer to the work of Madeline Hunter? And did that influence your views and your development of EDI? So where did EDI come from? Okay, we've crossed paths with these people. But let me back up a little bit. I don't know if you've heard of No Child Left Behind in the United States. It was in the early 2000s. Yep. That was the first big movement. Now, let me explain it for a minute. The United States was doing, remember we did school busing and all this stuff? And that was called equal opportunity to learn, uh, busing between schools for low income, different schools. Okay. Way back in the 60s. Okay. Equal opportunity to learn. The No Child Left Behind was equal outcome. There's a big difference between equal opportunity to transfer to a better school versus I want to see scores go up every place. So in California, they had a program and they identified schools and we got listed as a company at the state level to do school reform. And they would pick hundreds of schools to do reforms. We worked with 100 schools, 100 schools over a couple of years back in the early 2000s. Okay. So we had a big evaluation process. We collected student work from every student in the school. 
we went to every teacher in the classroom. We recorded, I think, a hundred different classroom practices, checking for understanding, modeling your thinking, uh, careful enunciation, time on task. And anyway, what came out of this, and Sylvia and I didn't believe it because we were not doing all the first observations, was there's no teaching going on. I said, wait a minute, we have millions of teachers out there every day. No, kids are working on worksheets, teachers are walking around helping people, but they're not actually teaching people how to, they're giving assignments, uh, kids are doing independent practice, they're working by themselves. By themselves. So that's what kind of got us started to go, we need to go into some type of instruction. Then Sylvia started the research. I guess Rosenstein was one of the first ones. I'm holding up a book, no one's gonna be able to see this, but it's called mm-hmm. Research on Teaching. And Rosenstein was in there and Madeline Hutter and this stuff. And all these people talk about having an objective, doing guided practice, doing checking for understanding. And even Sylvia will tell me when she first started teaching, she was told to check for understanding, but she didn't know how to do it. So what I'd like to say DataWorks did, Sylvia and I said, we operationalized what all these people said to do. So how do you have a learning objective? How do you teach a learning objective? How do you check for understanding? What should guided practice look like? Instead of just using the terms. I'll give you a funny one. Teachers used to tell us they were checking for understanding because they looked at the test score at the end of the week or they looked at the homework. I said, no, no, checking for understanding is asking questions every few minutes and check that the kids are learning. It's real-time questioning, real formative assessment, and not looking at it later on. So, so everyone knows the word checking for understanding, but most teachers were not actually doing it. So operationalize is what, oh, and some people said EDI is Madeline Hunter on steroids. <laughs> so, but I like to think we operationalize what the people said. Actually, there's almost nothing new in EDI. When you say guided practice, check for understanding, those are all, those are common terms, everybody. So we kind of operationalize it. This is exactly how you do it. Got it. So drilling into that, let's, let's take one of those examples you were just talking about, operationalizing learning intentions. And one of the powerful things that I did find in your book that was that you did offer really crystal clear ways to go from, for example, a, a statement in a curriculum document uh, to an actual mm-hmm. learning intention that can be taught in the classroom. Can you, right. can you sketch that out for us, that process? Okay. The standards, and we work with the Australia standards quite a bit also in the United States, where the sentences are long and convoluted. And they actually usually contain a semicolon, uh, and, and they're really two or three standards in one sentence. So we call that deconstruct the standards or take them apart and just pull out the actual, you call it learning intent or learning objective. Now, learning objective has two things, a skill, which is a verb, and a noun, which is the concept. So if you say, Analyze characters. Analyze is the skill, and characters is the is the concept you're actually teaching. There may be other words in there. So one thing we did, we took these long, convoluted things and broke them down into very teachable ones that you put up for the students. Now, one thing I need to emphasize: do not write student-friendly objectives. Don't say we'll learn about. No, we're we're going to distinguish between fact and opinion. Keep that vocabulary in there. And don't say we're going to read stories, we're going to read a literature, we're going to read, a, you know, whatever you're using, some type of poem. Keep the vocabulary in there. And of course, it has to be, it can't be that long and convoluted. And for young students, it can only be like two or three words. Keep the words that are in the standard, because I swear the test makers were told you can use any word that's in the standard. So when it says, analyze author's intent in a passage, the test question might be, what is the author saying in this passage? because passage was in the standard. And I've mm-hmm. had students tell me 
they couldn't answer the question because they didn't know what the word passage meant. Mm. I said, no, these words are in the standard. So you're really breaking it down into a, at least a skill, a verb and a noun, a skill and a concept is at least two words and keep the intent and the words are in it. Now, one more thing you need to do as students move up and Naplin has all kinds of discussion about literal questions versus inferential questions. I'm sure you've read some of that. A literal question, you search for the answer. An inferential question, you have to come up with the answer on your own from what's there. Okay. So usually the standards will be identify characters, analyze characters, compare and contrast characters. So make sure you've used that skill. You move that skill up for your grade level. Now, if we're in high school, we're saying identify the characters in Shakespeare, you're doing first grade. Because first grade is identified. Shakespeare doesn't count. Mm. Your skill is too low. Mm. Okay. Let's take an example. So I've dug out a few kind of learning intent or a few curriculum statements, and I was hoping we could kind of break them down into using this process that you've offered. So one from the Australian curriculum is quite long, goes as follows. Plan, select, and use appropriate investigation types, including field work and laboratory experimentation, to collect reliable data, assess risk, and address ethical issues associated with these methods. What what do we do with that, John? What do we do with that? Okay. Actually, I'm glad you gave me that because I've looked at it. Okay. I don't know if you've got your paper in front of you, but let's highlight the skills. Those are the verbs. The okay. Opening three are plan, mm -hmm. select, and use. You okay. see that? Yep. So your very shortest objective could be plan and investigation. Okay. You follow that? Plan yep. and investigation. And next one could be select appropriate investigation types. Now, next to it, it says field work and laboratory experimentation. Do you see that? Mm -hmm. Those are the examples of the two types of investigation for this standard. Okay. Okay. You're going to select either field work or laboratory experimentation. Mm -hmm. You see that? Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, the semicolon, assess the risk to ethical issues associated with these methods. That's a whole other standard. Totally. Right? So you're, that's a whole other lesson. It has nothing to do with this. You're going to assess, that's the verb, and your concept, you're going to have to teach ethical issues, what that means, and how they relate them. Okay? And actually says, with these methods. So assess the ethical issues with field work and with laboratory work. Mm. Okay? And I'm just making a few guesses off the top of my head. Laboratory work, you might say you're killing mice or rabbits to do an experiment. That could be an ethical thing of the laboratory work. Field work might be, is it intrusive? Is it accurate? You know what I mean? Because you're going to go in the field and measure, like, like we do go in the classroom and do something. So this could be quite teachable, but you need to chunk it down. Okay. Now, this first part, plan, and the last part, it says use. Do you see the word use? Mm -hmm. Use means conduct your own experiment. You know what this says? Use an appropriate type, either field work or laboratory experiment, to conduct an investigation. Okay. So I, there's more than one lesson here. How many lessons do you see in this? I mean, judging by what you said, I've seen, I can see about, you know, at least nine different kind of learning intentions <laughs> there. What do you think? Well, no, you're gonna, I think you could combine field work and laboratory experimentation into one conceptual lesson. This is what one is, and this is what the other is. Okay. And they'll be good to compare and contrast. So you don't need two lessons to differentiate between the two of those. Okay. Now the plan, plan and select, probably plan and select, um, no, no, select and use. Let's say select. Well, they're all kind of overlapping. Plan, use, but the ultimate is you need conceptual part first. What a field experiment is, what a laboratory experiment is. Uh, you need the pluses and minuses of each one. 
I think the ultimate one is you're going to be assigned, the assignment, the homework at the end is you're assigned to make this study. I want you to write down what are you going to do field study or laboratory study and why? Okay. Okay. Kind of bring it and together. Ethical issues is another, is a whole separate lesson. But this could be teachable. Okay. This is what we call the deconstructing the standards. Mm. So if you're doing this, usually what I do is I put a weekly line under those verbs, plan, select, and use. And then I'm putting some circles around investigative types. And the types are field work and laboratory, right? Those are just examples. So the standard gives you examples. They could have stopped right there. Use appropriate investigation types. But they really said such as field work and laboratory experimentation. Okay. Oh, I suppose you could teach one more thing, reliable data. Mm. That might be a lesson in itself. That's almost a lesson you and I talked about, experimental error. Mm-hmm. So I think you need to tie this into reliability too. Fantastic. Well, I've got I've got another one because I put I did put the call out to people and Tierney Kennedy wrote back and said she's been struggling with this one a bit and would love some guidance. So how we how will we deconstruct this standard? Investigate equivalent fractions used in contexts. Right. Well, I think investigate is an unusual verb. I mm. I would have just as soon said solve word problems using equivalent fractions. That's, okay. that's what the means solve in context. Equivalent fraction. One half is two fourths is five tenths. But no, we're trying to say there's one boy for every two girls. If we have 100 boys, how many girls are there? Mm. That is a equivalent fraction in context, right? Okay. That's what I think they want you to end up solving. Cool. I, the investigate, I think, is, is kind of wrong. If you want to take it to the ultimate, kids would have to write their own problems. Mm. In okay. a given scenario, but I think basically this should be solve word problems using solve word problems using equivalent fractions. Hopefully that was helpful, Tierney. <laughs> All right, now something that kind of overs- overarches the whole EDI process is this idea of engagement norms. So engagement oh, norms, yeah. yeah, these include things like pronounce with me, track with me, read with me, gesture with me, pair share, attention signal, whiteboards, complete sentences, chin it, park your boards, answer in full sentences, and stand and deliver. So I thought we could dive into some of these a little bit more. And the one I wanted to touch on first was the idea of pair-share because pair-share is something that a lot of teachers probably do already right. or think that they do already. So I just wanted to kind of open this up and, and ask a few things about this. First of all, what do you see is the purpose of pair-share? You asked the question about why we should pair-share. Let me give you the first reason. You've probably watched teachers in a classroom and you've taught yourself. We've been in 35,000 classrooms. Usually two or three kids answer all the questions the whole year. It's that same two or three. They're in that little circle kind of close to the teacher up front. Okay. So when you pair share, every student answers every question for the whole year, even if they're never called on. I want you to think about that. Only three kids are participating in the questioning generally. Now, every student is at least saying an answer to his part. He's producing an output. And he's hearing an answer from his partner. And part of brain research is what? Getting some repetitions, internalizing it, thinking about it, talking about it. So that's the first one. Okay. Automatic. Every student answers every question. Here's the next one. You've probably heard of wait time. It takes a little bit to process an answer. And I know you asked a question here about these fast questions. And the problem with rapid questions is there's no think time. The whole class is not coming up with an answer. The real research on wait time is you ask a question, you wait a few seconds, and everybody's thinking about it. When you do the question very quickly, only that person is thinking about it, and the other kids are just watching. Okay, so wait time, rather than just wait three to five seconds, the pair share is the wait time while the kids talk to each other. 
I'll just give you a couple more listening and speaking. Most classes we've been in, the teacher talks way too much. The teacher's talking all the time. The kids are not talking enough at the con and content. I don't mean just talking, but talking using a new vocabulary. So a pair share is where you do that listening and speaking and talking with a new vocabulary. I'll just tell you one more student engagement. Tell me, what grade do you teach? 11 and 12. Okay. And you don't have to, maybe don't have the exact answer, but what do you think the attention span of your students is? <laughs> Depends if you're talking about them when they're looking at me or when they're actually actively thinking about it. If I if I talk, if I talk, which I rarely do, but if I talk for an extended period of time, probably six minutes, maybe. Yeah. See, teachers think they can talk for 45 minutes or 50 minutes, you know, the whole period, right? The kids have tuned out, I think, in two minutes. Even if their face is looking at you, their brain is tuned out. Mm. So what happens is when you stop and you ask that question, kids start talking to each other. When they turn back, they've reset their attention span and they can listen for a few more minutes and they're completely engaged. And you'll find out when you do this pair share, the whole class wakes up and they come back and they're ready to listen for a few more minutes. Mm. So just do it for engagement and nothing else. <laughs> so what are some of the common mistakes you see teachers make when, when doing pair share? Okay, what they do is they just say, talk to your partner. Okay. Now, you know, the last one, we're going to come to a minute ago is the complete sentence. Mm -hmm. Okay. So we generally give a sentence frame and I give you an example. You say, students, calculate the perimeter, do problem number four and hold the answer on your whiteboard. And they'll hold up, it says 24. And I said, now I want you to turn to your neighbor and I want you to say, the perimeter of the polygon is, and read your answer. Then I want you to point to the diagram and explain how you calculate it. So listen to this, the perimeter of the polygon is. Now, how about this? The character trait of the so-and-so in the passage is, right? The main idea in the excerpt is, and I did a very simple lesson one time where students had to write a vowel. This is like first or second grade. Write a vowel on your whiteboard. I want to know their vowels and constants. We're gonna do syllabication. And I said, now turn to your partner and say, the vowel I wrote was, and point to it. The kids came up, we called, and the teachers were in the back of the room, were speechless. They said, I can't believe that little sentence made everyone sound so smart, put everybody back on track. In high school, we were reading this one about the Duke, said the Duke's character trait in the dramatic monologue was blank because. Again, the teacher said, our kids sound like academic scholars. I've never heard them sound like this. So here's the hint, pair share every time, but you provide the sentence frame with the academic language. Don't write, I wrote 24. The perimeter is, don't write, I wrote Cinderella. You can say the character in the, very tale is. That's great. With that sentence frame, do you usually actually write that out so students can read it and refer to it if they need to, or do you just say it? Okay, now this is a good example. We have we're not consistent. A lot of times we have it written out. Now, if you're going to scaffold, now you don't mean by scaffolding, we're trying to help struggling kids or differentiate. Okay, if you've got struggling students in your classroom, then write it out every time. Have it on the board, have the kids even read it with you. The character in the passage is blank. Let's read it one more time. Now you're going to say that to your partner. So we have started putting them on there. And when we have a, a very needy class, we'll use them all the time. And other times we don't always have them. But here's the trick. The students have to know the sentence frame comes from the question. The question will say, what's the main idea in the passage? Because you're going to say the main idea in the passage is. So when kids, when I don't have a sentence frame, I just point to the question right here. 
it says it says right here who is the character in the first paragraph that's what you're gonna say the character in the first paragraph is okay so the kids will get on that as they start doing it they'll start using it more and more now i need to add one more thing this pair share is academic length right the passage the excerpt the linear equation the steps of mitosis they're not i wrote my answer i'm thinking it a number they're that's forcing them to use the academic vocabulary which they will not use out of the classroom on their own they'll be back to conversational language in addition to pair share when you go into classrooms and you work with teachers what is the most frequent engagement norm that you specify to teachers should be their next focus in order to improve their instruction? Okay, I think one of them is to read with me. The teacher will come up and read the whole thing. A linear equation has x to the first power. I said, have the kids read that. A linear equation has the unknown to the first power. Have them read it. To solve a linear equation, use inverse operation. Have the kids read that. Now, this also means you need a text-based lesson. If you've have you ever taught math? Yes. You solve physics problems with math, right? Correct. I'm a math teacher as well. Yeah. V equals IR, AX squared. You've done math problems. The teacher will put the problem on the board and fill the board with symbols and numbers and never have said the quadratic equation, the solution to a quadratic equation. The kids have never actually read the math words. So now you need to have the words up with a quadratic equation has the unknown, the second power. Isn't that right? Quadratic equation. So the kids need to read that. So I would say make the kids read more. Now, we'll talk about that reading. You don't need to pre-read every single thing. Depending on the kids, you can make a judgment call. But you do need to pre-read more than you think. <laughs> That's great. So I would have to say, have the kids read more. And I, I don't. I never say this, but it's talk less. Mm. Mm. Have the kids read, have the pair share, hold up, report out. Let's jump into what is what many people see is the foundation of edi now and that is the idea of tapple tapple stands for just for the benefit of listeners teach first ask questions pair share pick a non-volunteer listen to the response and effective feedback and i thought that a good way to do this might be by kind of looking at and referring to a lesson that you provide on your eduseri website so eduseri for listeners is a website you can sign up for free, I believe, for a month or something. Is that right, John? To have a look at it? Yeah, just go to, we made up that name, Educeri, E-D-U-C-E-R-I, E-D-U-C-E-R-I.com. Yeah, we've actually got almost 1,500 lessons up there. Cool. So these are, these are examples of explicit direct instruction lessons. So I thought we could kind of refer to one of these as we go through the TAPL framework. And the one I've picked for today is identify and communicate sources of experimental error. I thought this would be good because I know we've got some science teachers who listen, and also because it's not a it's not a concept that people are always familiar with. So it might provide a little bit of additional stimulation in the actual content of the lesson, as well as what we're talking right. about in terms of the framework. So that title again was identify and communicate sources of experimental error. So let's start before we dive into Tapple. Let's just start with the idea of the learning intention. Okay. So here the learning intention is we will identify and communicate sources of experimental error. So once that's there, that's there on the board, that's there on the first slide, what's the teacher supposed to do with that? Okay, now in EDI, we actually came up with some steps to do every single one of them. And they actually use our norms and the TAPL sort of combined together. So I can just say, now there's one more thing we could do here. See the, the word communicate. Mm-hmm. We try to use footnotes with uh, two to seven words in a lesson, so we want to teach vocabulary. So communicate could be a word we would teach, but 
let's call this. If we're going to pronounce some words, we might pronounce the word students. This is communicate. Let's all say it together. Communicate. The second word is experimental. Let's all say it together. Experimental. Now, depending on your students, if the students are kind of marginal, you know, they're reading. I said, kids, I'm going to read this first. We will identify and communicate sources of experimental error. Let's all read together. We will identify and communicate sources of experimental error. Now, we're going to use the pair share. Let's review what I did so far. I read it as a teacher and I told the kids to look at the word because I want to support reading. I read it first, then they read it. They said, you're going to read to your partner. I want the A partner to read it, the B partner to read it. All right, now I'm going to get my sticks out. I'm going to call a couple of you to read it back. This sounds simple. Okay, I did this one time in a math lesson. I forgot to pre-read it. The whole class, I swear, all 30 kids, today we will solve linear equations. Every student mispronounced it. That's, and it looks so simple. I said, well, I don't even need to read it. Mm. So you do need to do this more than you think. So we've just done it four times, right? I read it, the class read it, they read it to the partner. Oh, and I called two more people. We've just said this six times. The words that are in your brain right now are communicate, sources, experimental error. It's kind of displaced other things you were thinking about. So the steps for this is basically teacher reads, students read, pair share, read to your partner, and call a non-volunteer to read it back. Cool. Before we go any further, I'll just mention um, we're going to make this lesson available via the, the podcast link as well. So um, you can either jump on Edgeseria and find it or you can quickly navigate it to it via ollielevel.com if you'd like to kind of view the lesson whilst we're talking about it. Now, as I mentioned before, John, I'm, I teach Year 11 and 12 physics. Right. Do you encourage Year 12 11 and 12s or senior high school teachers to do this as well? You know, the teacher reads it, the class reads it together, they read it to each other, okay. you pull a stick, or is this more of a primary thing? Okay, there's actually three ways to do this tract reading. Okay. The first way is the full tract reading. I will read the whole sentence and you'll read it after me. We will identify and communicate sources of experimental Okay, the second one is, this is probably what you use for high school mostly. You pick one or two difficult words, you pre-pronounce students. This is communicate and this is experimental error. Let's read together, go. You see how that works? I just pre-pronounce words I think they will trip up on. Okay. If it's something simple, if you look down at the next sentence, let us collect some data, I don't need to pre-read that. So the third one is, is the choral reading. Now, one reason you do choral reading is to wake up the kids and to get them back on track. If you read all of this yourself, they're falling asleep. So at least have them read as much as possible just for engagement. Okay. So remember the three ways, full track reading, Teacher reads, students read afterwards. The partial, we just read a difficult word. And the third one said, let's just read it together. Okay. Good framework. All right. The next thing you kind of do in this lesson and in, in all lessons, in fact, is you activate prior knowledge. Now, this is a right. term that gets thrown around all over the place. You know, you have to activate prior knowledge. So can you tell us, John, how does EDI operationalize that? Okay. This is a, I think everyone kind of agrees activating prior knowledge is a good idea. Most people activate it by asking what the verb, what the noun means. So kids, who knows what experimental error is? Who knows what automatopoeia means? Who knows what the quadratic equation is? And the kids don't know. So what I say is we're going to activate the idea. Let me give you an ELA example first, an English example. Students, how do you know the scary part of the movie is coming next? Right on your whiteboard, everybody will say, oh, it's the music, like Jaws or something. You know, the music is a giveaway. The scary part is coming next. Students, authors in literature do the same thing. They give you hints. They don't use music, but they will use sentences to give you hints of something to happen. There's a name for it. It's called foreshadowing clues. 
So that's called attach a label. Activate the idea and then put a label on it. This is what it's called. Okay. So that's one way to do it. Now, in math, it's usually a subskill or even physics. It could be what a subskill, a below grade level subskill, or something you're going to use today. Now, this one, do you have the lesson in front of you? Totally. <laughs> okay. Instead, we're going to identify and communicate some experimental sources of experimental error. Now, I don't say who knows what experimental error is. If you look at this, let's collect some data. Okay, let's read this together. We are running an experiment. I need to know the time to start. I want, okay, I'll read the next sentence. I want all of you to look at the clock and write down your time. Either use your watch or the time or your cell phone. Write it on your whiteboard. Then you turn your part into the time I have is blank. We're going to hold up the boards. I guarantee this is what's going to happen when the boards come up. They're not going to be the same, are they? Some people looked at the wall, some looked at their watch, some looked at their iPhone. I said, kids, we all looked at the time at the same time, but they're not the same. There's a name for that. It's called experimental error. <laughs> we all got a different number trying to measure the exact same thing. Kids, I think you already know what experimental error is. You just did it yourself. So that would be activating the idea. I do not say experimental error. If you look on the page, just in that little block in there, make the connection. Mm. I do not use the word until I'm kind of wrapping it up. But this is one to use. Uh, this is what I tell teachers. Do not start activating prior Who knows about blank? Okay, because wait till you've taught something. The kids do know the concepts a lot, but they don't know the vocabulary. So here it is. Activate the idea, but not the vocabulary. Then you provide the vocabulary as part of the list. <laughs> Fantastic. So we've kind of set the lesson up now. We've, we've had the learning tension. We've looked at ways to communicate that. We've explored ways to activate prior knowledge, not by asking oh, who knows what experimental error, but by actually eliciting some right. kind of experience around it. Now we can really kind of dive into the idea of TAPL. TAPL starts with teach first, and this relates very much right. to the idea of concept development, which you, you really bring out in your book. Now, this for me was an exciting part because I feel that in teacher education, despite the fact that much of what teachers do is actually explain things, we often are not given right. ways to actually explain things. We're not given the kind of mechanics of this is how you explain a concept. So the feeling I had when reading the EDI book was very similar to the kind of stuff I, I felt when I read Siegfried Engelman's stuff about theory of instruction with, wow, here's someone actually explaining how to explain things. So could you could you tell listeners, John, could you explain to listeners how to explain things, concept development? Okay. Uh, we have a little coined phrase, it's called work the page. Okay. You don't necessarily just read down the page. So here's it. If you want to take a couple of notes, this is what you need for concept development. I call it bulletproof written definitions and examples. Definitions and examples. Let's just look at the middle of this page. It says systemic errors are reproducible errors that are consistently in the same direction. Let me tell you what that means. We could be using a balance to take the mass of something that was not zeroed correctly, and it will always give us a 0.001 gram error. So if what I did was what I read the definition, and then I gave an example below it. Okay, random errors are ones that da-da-da. Look, here's an example right there. We measured three times and got three different results, just like we did a minute ago with the time, okay? Systemic errors, blah, blah, blah. So what we have is a written statement and an example each time, an example. Now, there's what we can go to concept development theory, which is what you have critical attributes. Systemic errors are reproducible errors that are consistently in the same direction. Look at that phrase, kid. Same direction. Look at these samples. It's always 0.01 grams too heavy because the balance was not zeroed correctly. It will always be the same. Look at that. Systemic errors will always give the same error. 
Let's look over here at random errors. We'll give increases or decreases. Look at the sample right here, or just like we did with the clock. We got different ones. What random errors could be what in increase up or down. Systemic errors will always be the same direction from the same error. Anyway, so what your job is what to explain that. Written definitions, labeled examples. <laughs> now, I think we've got some things to point to down here. So I said, even look down here. Here, we're using a, uh, a balance to take the mass of something, 1.02, and we got 1.03, 1.03, 1.03. Was, but it did not measure our true value, 1.02. This is a systemic error. It's reading what? 0.01 too heavy every time. So actually, you've got the words and a little visual to point to. Okay. So if you can get that written, so your job as a teacher is to read the definition and go down to the examples and show what that means. Mm. Not just chant, not just chant, but actually prove what it means. Mm. And the phrase you referred to in the book in relation to this was, you give the definition, the bulletproof definition as you talk about it, and then you use the phrase, let me show you what that means. And then you give the examples. That's right. Yep. Yeah, I love that phrase. Okay, so here's the definition. Let me show you what that means. Here's somebody measuring something and these are the values they're getting. Okay, so the, this page may look dense, but we're really just teaching a couple things, systemic errors and random errors. And we have a little organizer to make sense. Systemic errors are always the same direction. That's the first characteristic. Systemic errors are avoidable. You can fix those. What's the third correct? Systemic errors have high precision. They give you the same number, but they're not accurate. So we've got actually some other attributes here. Consistency, avoidability, and accuracy. Random errors. What do we got? Are unavoidable. You'll never get rid of them. They give you poor precision. They're not the same, but they're more accurate because they average each other out. <laughs> Random errors will average out. Systemic errors, if your balance is off, it will never average the error. It'll always be off a little bit. <laughs> so there's a lot of concepts in here. Okay. So something that you build into, there, there are, it's, it's quite a dense lesson. Something you build into TAPL is checking for understanding. And this is something that you do over and over and over again throughout the whole process. So in terms of this first slide, you know, listeners may have just heard about the definitions of systematic and random errors, and, and it might be good if, it's, if those are new concepts for them, because that means that we can really kind of dive into <laughs> this checking right. for understanding. So how, in this context, how would you check for understanding whether or not students have managed to kind of absorb what that bulletproof definition actually means? Okay, so now I've got a checking for understanding on this, on your, uh, right here. So we have a question right here. Which data might represent systemic avoidable error? And we've got two choices. Now, I'd have the kids read this with me. Kids, let's read this together. Which data might represent systemic avoidable error and why? So you've got choices A and you've got choices B. So I want you to write on your whiteboard, A or B, and then I want you to say A or B represents systemic avoidable error because. That's your sentence frame. The answer A or B represents systemic or might represent systemic avoidable error because now see, this is a great question this right in with what we just taught and for those of you who use edgeseria when you click your mouse the answer is going to pop in for you <laughs> it just circled the answer for me so number b 0 0.20 0 0.20 0 0.20 is systemic error because it all came out exactly the same and that's what we just said over here we just applied one of the rules we just taught okay so this is a good checking for understanding for this lesson we're going to distinguish between what systemic error and random errors. And here we got right on this first page, we've got the first question for the kids to do it. Right now, Tapple, teach first, ask questions. 
What is the difference between ask questions and check for understanding? Is there a difference? Are they the same thing? Well, I see a lot of where we forget to teach first. We say, who knows what systemic errors are? We didn't teach first. Okay, now here's another one. So kids, remember it says pick a non-volunteer? Okay. A lot of teachers, they pick the first and first. They said, okay, uh, number two, here's the question. Which example is systemic error? And you notice I did there? I picked number two first. So student two is the only one and the rest are just turning to watch. If I said, class, I have a question. Which one represents systemic error? I'm going to pick one of you in a minute. Get ready to answer. Do you see the difference? Mm -hmm. Make sure the question is before the selected student. So that tapple, if you've got the tapple in front of you there, make sure you ask the question before you pick someone. Teachers, they make that slip quite often. They'll pick somebody and then they'll ask that question. That's the only student who's actually thinking of an answer. Also, there's no wait time. Number two, here's the question. Which one of these is systemic error? And the kids uh, wait, let me figure it out. There's no wait time. The wait time is under their gun. <laughs> mm. So these have to kind of be done in order. Got it. So, I mean, the way that Tapple's laid out, and many people have seen it, there's a picture of an apple and there's Tapple written on it, and each of the letters is kind of equally weighted. But when I was thinking about this, I actually thought if I were to set it out and if I've ex understood it correctly, the way I'd probably set it out is T for teach first, which is basically concept development, then A, which is ask questions, and then underneath A, I would kind of indent the following points because the following points, pair, share, pick a non-volunteer, listen to response and effective feedback, all come kind of as part of the asking a question, right? Because the, the ask a question, it's not like a discrete thing that finishes. Often we think of asking a question as including answering the question. But actually, in EDI, you explicitly say, we only ask the question and then all these other parts are part of how we respond to the question. So coming back to this example of the check for understanding within this concept development portion, this is the ask a question. And then within that, we will, before we give the answer or we ask a student or whatever, we'll actually do all these other steps. Am, am I correct in thinking that? So first we'll say, you pose the question, then you'll say, okay, I want you to pair share about what you think the answer is. And then you'll pick a non-volunteer and then you'll listen to their response and then you'll give effective feedback. Is that correct? Yeah, you've got to do this in order. I mean, sometimes we forget the pair share. Mm -hmm. and that's usually what, that's just a coaching cue. Remember to pair share, have your kids do it. All right, now, one more thing that's not really written in here directly is the sentence frame has to come before the pair share. That's a good point. So make sure the students are pair sharing with the sentence frame. If you forget it, only the student who answers is using the sentence frame. Okay. And then, let's see, so teach, some, sometimes we just say T and then Apple. Teach something, then check that they learned it. Teach and ask, teach and ask. Okay, yeah, that's good. So that's what I was basically saying then. But I'll tell you, there's one more you need to think about. We'll get to it in a second. It's the LE. That's the instructional decision at the mm. end. You've got to do something depending on what the kids say. Now, there were some frameworks for the ways to ask questions in terms of examples or non-examples that I just wanted to share with listeners. And I'll include this in the show notes as well because they're very helpful. Right. But often it's hard to know if you've just kind of given a definition and a, and a couple of examples, you know, how many questions can you ask? Like, what kind of questions are there? So, I don't know if you want to go through these examples, John, or, or I, could, I could read them out because they're basically a portion just taken out of the book. Maybe you could read through it and, and add, add a bit of color. Well, let me show you what we do in concept development. You remember, concept development, we're just defining systemic errors. We're not identifying the errors yet. We're only defining what the errors are. And I'm going to tell you one thing. A lot of teachers, they kind of skip concept development and they start solving problems too soon. So the only 
the generally the questions you're going to ask right now are re related to the definition of error, not identifying it or analyzing it to the, the definitions of it. So we just taught systemic error and random error. Systemic errors are preventable. It's the same problem. Random errors are above and below the true value. This is exactly our, what the problem is, our, our checking for understanding question. Which one is an example of systemic error? And that's exactly what we said. Distinguish between examples and non-examples of the concept. Mm. And so that's what this is right here. So remember, the checking for understanding for concept development has to distinguish usually between examples and non-examples. So it's like, which one is an example? I love reverse logic. Which one is not an example and why? All right. Give me your own example. Write three numbers on your whiteboard and show me an example of systemic error or random error. That's create your own. You might have a picture of something and explain it. I don't have a picture in this case, but it could be to explain it. So if you look at these, every one of them is distinguished between an example, justify why is this an example, why is this not an example, compare an example and not an example, or create your own example. But it's always an example because we haven't solved anything yet. So that's the difference for concept development. Is can you, can, do I know you understand the definitions of the new vocabulary used or new concepts used in the lesson? Mm. Now, you call those kind of check for understandings type one check for understandings, where we ask things like, which is an example of how do you know, things like that, justify provided examples. The type two you offer is explain the definition in your own words. I've always what? had troubles with this approach. In some ways, it goes against what you've offered at the start, which is produce a bulletproof definition, right? Because if you have the as the teacher has, have developed a bulletproof definition, it's unlikely the students are going to come up with a better definition than that. So I've often had troubles with this, explain this in your own words, because students will say something that kind of isn't quite right, but it's kind of right. And then you head down some long description of the subtleties of why their definition isn't quite accurate. And it gets it gets a bit messy. So do you, do you actually use this? And if you use it, how do you make it work? Well, I've had that same problem. I'll give you an example one. When you're at a very young age, what is a noun? A noun is a word that names a person, place, a thing. There's no way to paraphrase it. Mm. You're absolutely right. Sometimes what you've written is as good as it's going to get. So to ask kids to paraphrase it. I have seen kids be able to, if you, okay, let me ask one, tell you one more thing. You don't ask that question till further on down. That's the very last where the kids know a lot. Okay. Don't just read the definition and ask them to paraphrase it. They don't know enough. Yep. And sometimes you can even push this to the end of lesson. Kids, now that we're all done at the end of lesson, can you tell me what is experimental error? And then they'll have their own definition they can do it. So sometimes this could be pushed out as like a concept closure question mm. as opposed to one here. So I will say I don't always use that in here. It's not written, I don't think, in this one. And this lesson didn't happen to have it. But uh, you're right. If it's if some cannot be paraphrased, but I tell you, when you can get to the level where the kids can paraphrase is when they absolutely understand it. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. But that's a, that's no a great question. distinction. That's something that comes later and maybe is a closure question or something like that. I'm almost thinking now it's a better closure question than to do one in here. Yeah. But don't make it your first question. You do two or three questions, examples, non-examples, explain the diagram, then maybe the last one could be that. Mm -hmm. Fantastic. Now, do you always have to pair share in relation to every single question that you ask? Well, if you don't pair share, the kids are not talking. Mm -hmm. If you ask this question right here, which data set represents a systemic error? Let me hold up your board. Let me call on somebody. The kids didn't talk. Only the three kids. You need to pair share. Actually, I've had teachers take an oath. I will pair share every question for the rest of my career. <laughs> <laughs> Let me give you the one exception. If you're doing closure, 
and you want to see that the, what the kids have learned and not learned, and you want to do some individual accountability. Then, as kids, write your answer on your whiteboard, write it, hide it, no pair share. And I want to see if you can answer on your own. Mm-hmm. So I, that's the one time to use no pair shares towards the end. We are releasing the kids, and you really want to figure out who's got it and who needs extra help. Okay, that's a great point. That that actually relates to my next question. So we had teach first, ask questions, pair share, pick a non-volunteer. Mm-hmm. Now, you usually use pop sticks, or you advocate the use of pop sticks for this, isopod sticks. Um, tell us a little bit about this pick a non-volunteer process. All right. Now, that I think I've already mentioned several times, if you do hand raisers, it's the same two or three kids every time. Mm-hmm. I have noticed in high school, maybe not in your school, but the, the kids I call the, the peripheral kids around the edge, and they actually try to hide out in school. If they just don't make any trouble, nobody calls on them, and they're just passive to get through time. Mm-hmm. Once you pull your sticks, it's a game changer. Like Everybody has to pay attention, and the, the participation comes up. Sticks were the first way we did it. I've done now, you can do it with an app on your computer or your uh, iPhone, you know, a randomizer, and you can get a fancy one where the name pops up on the screen. So, but you still have to be random. I'm not saying you don't call a kid once in a while just to speed things up, but you really have a tough time. You cannot call kids randomly if you think you are. You're really not. You need to have a mechanism somehow. Let me tell you one thing. I think it's in the book also. When you pull those sticks out, make sure the stick goes back in. Students know they can be called right again. There's not going to be 20 more rounds till they get called again. And I've done this so many times. I put the stick back in. I call it the second time. Kids, you just call them. I said, well, you got to be ready anytime. Let me hear your answer. There's no getting out of it. The sticks are good, too. There's no getting out of it. <laughs> so in the book, you suggest we should pick usually at least two non-volunteers for a question. And if it's a more tricky concept, you kind of get a slightly larger sample. You might ask three or maybe even four students. To what extent is that actually a reliable judgment of, of who in the classroom is understood and who hasn't? Because if the first student gets it correct, following students can just, just repeat their answer, no? Well, usually the question is explain your answer and how do you know? Okay. And the kids have to be able to explain, like this one right here, which data set is systemic error and why? And then you might say, so why did you not pick the other one? So usually to justify your answer gets it. But I have found when kids are learning it, it just doesn't work out that way. Kids are not just copying the other one. They either kind of know it or they don't. You know? Now, I will go aside. When you see whiteboard, you think kids have copied their answer, then you call them to explain it. So as a teacher, that's kind of your job. When you see someone, they're just copying. You just you pull your stick up, but you just call their name. And we call that fake the stick. And you say, read me your answer and explain it. Mm. So I expect the kids to be able to explain it. So it has not turned out to be a problem. And I think one of it is, is that now every question has to be to just justify your answer and how did you get it and why. It's not just saying A is or B is what systemic data error. No, you have to, well, why is it? And I might say, go back and look at the definition and tell me why it is. So it has not turned out to be a problem. Okay. Now I will say, you probably know when you start calling kids, the, sort, the answers are kind of shaky, aren't they? And the kids aren't there. When you start hearing these kind of, I think it's two, I think it's A, because when you start hearing those shaky answers, sometimes I just keep calling kids. I call three or four, and then by the time it's come out like the fourth or fifth time, it's really getting better. And everybody's learning from it because they're hearing that answer. Mm. And your struggling kids need to hear those answers. One time, I don't know if it's Rosenstein or somebody actually wrote an article, the purpose of checking for understanding is a cognitive strategy to force you to interact with the data to talk about, to answer a question, to talk to your partner. So we're not just checking if they're learning. I'm forcing you to get more repetitions, more interaction, help you learn it. 
So kids are shaky, then you, you can call more. If they really don't know, you need to reteach. You also mentioned in passing there the idea of fake the stick, <laughs> which is something you introduce in the book as well, which is basically the idea that if you want to call on a student, you can kind of pull a stick and then say that student's name if they seem to be off task or something like that. And I wanted to highlight that before you talked about random name generators and it pops up on the screen, obviously that takes away the option of for the teacher no. to be able to fake the stick. So do you have a comment on that? <laughs> yeah, you're right. The, the, the one with the computer now... I've done one on my iPhone. I have a random generator on my iPhone, but it doesn't go on the screen. So the kids actually don't know what I got. Now, every teacher will do this naturally. They'll call kids who aren't paying attention, and that's, that's kind of a natural teaching technique. But another one to do it is call on struggling kids when you think they've got the answer. Mm. Now, let me tell you, you know what Down syndrome is? Yep. Okay, I've had those students in my classroom. Okay. I watched the lesson. And when and they had a whiteboard and had an aide helping them and stuff. But when I saw she had the right answer, I'm telling you, I put down my six and I just called her. And she got up and read the correct answer. And I don't think she'd ever been allowed to answer a question or even a correct question ever in school or do anything. And if you'd seen her face, I mean, I could hardly teach after it. This girl got up and gave her answer. I could, oh, let's give her a little round of applause for that good answer. So that was probably my best fake to stick. When I saw a really struggling student who had the correct answer and they could give me the answer, I call them. And I actually like the fake the stick. It's really for struggling kids. The high-performing kids don't need to be called. They come up with good answers, but I want everyone to be successful. Okay. That's a, another thing. I, I've, I've been using different colored sticks in the past, and the students quickly learn the color of their stick, so that takes away that option as well. So I'll be using right. plain colored sticks in future as well <laughs> to open up that option. All right, so we've done... Teach first, ask questions, pair, share, pick a non-volunteer. The next idea is listen to the response. What's important All about right. this stage? Okay, you're really trying to decide two things. Is the whole class confused or just one or two kids confused? Uh, it takes a little bit of checking on that. Okay. Usually our rule, I think it was the original research we read, came up 80%, reteach to 80%. So if half the whiteboards are wrong, it's just boards down a reteach. And I did a first grade lesson one time. The boards came up. Half of them were wrong. I think the kids were just guessing. Actually, the, I don't think anybody knew. I just said boards down. Now, I made that. What did I do? Listen or look at the response. I made the decision I was going to reteach. Boards down. I retaught. I came back. Two minutes later, boards up 100%. So I feel I went from nobody knowing to 100% knowing by two, you know, in two minutes. How did, your, how did your reteaching look different from the first time, if at all? Well, I think what happened was, this is a very simple, is this a question or a statement? Do I put a period, what do you call it, ending marks? Uh, do I put a period or a question mark at the end of the sentence? Okay. So I think you have a different name for it in Australia. For, Not sure. Well, punctuate, you don't call ending, ending, what do you call a period at the end of the sentence? Full stop, it? There it is, full stop. It's called a period in the United States. Okay, full stop or a question mark. So all we did was read sentences and the kids just had to write the full stop dot or the question mark. And I think the problem was I kind of declared the first answer myself. I said, oh, yeah, that's a question. But I didn't explain my thinking. So I said, so I retaught. I said, kids, look, look at the first words. What is? What? Kids, when you see that and you have to come up with an answer, that's one way you know it's a question because it's asking you to come up for an answer. If it just says today is Monday, that's not a question because it's not asking you for an answer. So I really had to model what words I looked at and what strategy I used to determine. 
the problem is the teacher, I knew so easily, I just declared the answer and I didn't explain my thinking. And the young kids need that thinking. Okay. So that was just the case of what forged down a reteach. I'll, I'll add something there. I actually had a similar situation the other week. I taught a, a physics class on electric fields to my, my new year 12 students. We were doing a head start kind of a thing. And they were pretty confused for the majority of the lesson. And I could feel, and I kind of kept pushing on and kind of coming back and trying to, trying to get to it. But they, they, they really struggled at the end. I thought they didn't quite get this like I'd hoped by the end of the lesson. And so I actually taught exactly the same lesson the following Tuesday, you know, about four or five days later. And suddenly they were just absolutely flying. It was exactly the same, the way that I'd hoped the lesson had gone <laughs> in the first place. And I mean, I, I modified some things slightly based upon the misunderstandings right. I knew from the first time, but, you know, very much it was the same lesson. So sometimes it's just the day or just that additional, the second time through, they've just picked up something from the first time and they're ready to take it on right. the, the, the full picture the second time. So that's kind of a, a larger scale approach to, to just reteaching after, after we've understood that the understanding hasn't been developed. Well, let me tell you one big hint here for coaching. Once you see the kids confused, you need to stop and reteach that little chunk. By the time you got the end, it was, is this electromotive force? What was the lesson? Oh, it's just electric fields and things like the oil drop experiment, which you may or may not be familiar with, things like that. Oh, those are the ones with the lines that go out? That was part of it, yes. The interference lines? Yeah, okay. Anyway, because I did the same thing when I first started out. I let the confusion go way too long. What you need is a checking for understanding. I think the rules like every two minutes, and then just reteach that two minutes, and then pull the kid with you the whole way. It might be a little slower, but they're with you every step of the way. So that would be my hint here: don't let them get behind. Advice. And in this case, you realize the whole class was confused. Like not that's different than one or two kids. So wait, let me finish on this thing: the difference between the whole class and one or two children. So when I saw that many whiteboards confused, I retaught the whole class, and then I re-asked the questions. Now, sometimes you'll come up with a student is confused. Now, don't reteach the whole class because you've got one student who doesn't know it. And we made that mistake with Sylvia. We started videoing. We didn't have strategies for feedback except for reteach. And Sylvia would reteach five times. The student still couldn't answer the question. So uh, why don't we go over a couple of things you can do for the corrective feedback? Can we do that for TAPL, effective feedback? Yeah, let's, so let's go there. So listening for response is basically trying to identify whether it's, it's just a few students or the whole class. And once we've done That's that, right. we move on to effective feedback. So let's go there. All right. Now, I'm not sure these are in the order you would do with them, but I'll give you the first one. Cues and prompts. That All teachers do that naturally. They give hints, they hold up the diagram, they point to the drawing again. And then they kind of give cues and prompts. Avoid sounding out the word. It's a noun. You know, don't use sound out. That's not really a cue and prompt. It should be something uh, conceptual to help the kids do it. Okay. Now, the second one, and listen to this one. This is great. I'll come back to you. Now, if you catch the kids off guard, you don't need to say, why aren't you paying attention? Just, okay, I'm going to come back to you. Listen carefully. I'm going to come back to you in a second. I'm going to call a few more people. Just move on. And Doug Lemov calls this no, no opt-out. Yeah, there's no opt-out. Yep. So I'll come back to you. And then you call a couple of the kids, and then you come back. Okay? But if we look down here, two wrong answers in a row. Now, if this kid, I'm going to come back to you, and I call another, I'm going to come back to you, and wait a minute, everybody's saying they don't know. So I'm going to reteach. So two wrong, reteach. All right. De-escalate to multiple choice. Okay. So when you say, what is a linear equation? And the kids go, I don't know. I said, let me rephrase this. 
Does a linear equation have the unknown to the first power or to the second power? Is that easier to answer? It's just what? Recognize. A quadratic equation. What is it? I don't know. Let me rephrase that question. Will the unknown be to the first power or to the second power? Okay. So that's that's called de-escalate to multiple choice. First of all, they don't have to recall. They only have to recognize between two options. And this is a good way to get struggling kids to move on and not let your teaching get stuck. All right, one more. If kids have the wrong answer, I see you have a different answer on your whiteboard. Can you explain your answer to me? Uh, well, I did this. Oh, wait a minute. I did the wrong problem. Oh, wait, I copied it wrong. Oh, wait, I did so. The kids will often self-correct. So explain your thinking is a good one. Here's the one I've used occasionally. Pair share again. <laughs> okay. I look at the whiteboard. I said, kids, let's uh, turn to your partner. Let's explain one more time. If you all have different answers, I want you to talk with your partner and make sure and see if you can come up with one answer. That won't work if the level of knowledge is too low. There's no, the kids can't pair share, but sometimes the pair share again will straighten that up. Do you ever have any discipline problems? Not that often in year 11 and 12, but from time to time. Well, let me tell you how these work for discipline. You've already mentioned it several times. There's no opting out, is there? So I'm in a demonstration lesson, like five or six teachers in the back. I called a student. Can you answer this? He says, no, I'm not going to answer. And I just said, I'm going to come back to you. I called a couple of people that came back. He says, I'm still not going to answer. I called a couple more people that came back. He says, well, I'm not going to answer. Now, our last strategy here is called read the answer with me. <laughs> read the answer. So, okay, you've got it right here in the worksheet in front of you. Let's read the definition of figurative language together. Ready? You and I are going to read it. Figurative language is the use of blah, blah, blah. And he kind of read about half the words. I said, okay, he's got to give a round of applause. Let's go on. So what I did was, what I came, I never yielded. I came back. I made him kind of read the answer with me. I didn't get in an argument with me. And kids work hard to misbehave. It's easier to pay attention in the class. And it kind of shifted him after that. And he just, he started participating. So the last one is just read the answer or tell them the answer. I can't reteach one-on-one while the whole class is waiting to move on. I'm just saying, can you see there where you add those two numbers? You had a negative times a negative, so you're positive. Can you change that? Hold up your board and let me see it. Here's another one you probably taught exponents. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I had, uh, I think, four squared and half the class wrote eight. Or a lot of wrote eight. So kids, let's remember exponents. Four squared means four times four. Check your board. Check your partner. Do race, fix it if you have to. Hold up and let me see. Bam. That I'm just fixing the error on the fly. <laughs> that read the answer with me, it reminded me of something I, I've done. I, I taught a couple of literacy classes a few years ago. And I found in these classes, we were encouraging students to do some reading to the whole class. And you inevitably came across a few students who were unwilling to kind of read, which was okay. But to try to scaffold them to actually start doing that, what I would say is, okay, you don't want to read, that's okay, but can you just read for me one word? And they would read <laughs> one word, and then the next time I'd come to them, can you please read two words? And they read two words. And actually, by the end of the lesson, they were happy to read up to a sentence or even some of them a paragraph. So it's kind of the same idea of just kind of easing them into contributing to the class by a really low barrier at the start. And then, you know, they, they actually realize that they are enjoying participating. Okay, we have found a lot of children, they're not good readers and they're embarrassed and all that. And you might do this. So if I called, you say, what is experimental error? I've still got it on my screen here. I said, uh, can you read it after me? Experimental error is the difference. Can you read that? Different, blah, blah. Between a measurement and its true value. Can you read that? Between a measurement. See that echo reading? Mm -hmm. So then you're, you're cueing the kid first. He's following your words and he can read it after you. For young kids, you might have to do that, you know, for even for first grade or something. But I think reading it said, I'm going to read this and then you can read it after me.
if they're if you actually recognize they're struggling readers you're not going to get a kid to read it who cannot physically read it if he's a bad reader so just do the echo read read a little bit and have them read afterwards and then sometimes i'll say class we're all going to read it together again experimental error is the difference between mm. and make sure their eyes are on those words usually we're pointing to the words with the laser pointer or something mm. all right so we're through tapel teach first ask questions pair share, pick a non-volunteer, listen to the response, work out if it's a few students or the whole class, and effective feedback, things such as provide cues and prompts, I'll come back to you, de-escalate to a multiple choice question, explain your thinking, read the answer with me if they're really struggling with things, you could you could even just reteach if there's heaps of students struggling with it, or pair share again, which you mentioned you've used a few times before, John. So that's the TAPL framework. After, after kind of, and that's more related to kind of developing concepts. We're going quite deep into, into instruction here, but I, I think that's good and hopefully listeners are finding that helpful. Dear listeners, I just wanted to pause the proceedings at this point to let you know that if you've been enjoying the ideas and insights from John Hollingsworth so far, and if you'd like the key takeaways from this podcast summarized in an easy reference format, then I have some good news for you. I've been making detailed notes on the ERRR books that I read in preparation for the show for quite some time now, and I recently thought, why not type these summaries up in a more user-friendly form for a wider audience? So this month, I've done so. These summaries will be sent out to all those who support the ERRR podcast through Patreon as a little thank you for your ongoing support of the show. I'm hoping that supporters of the show find them to be helpful summaries and reference documents capturing the key ideas shared throughout the ERRR podcast. If you're already a supporter of the ERRR podcast through Patreon, then you'll be receiving my summary of Hollingsworth and Yabara's book, Explicit Direct Instruction, shortly after the release of this podcast. If you aren't a patron as yet, but maybe you've been thinking about it for a while, and if you'd like a copy of this summary of Explicit Direct Instruction, then please jump onto patreon.com forward slash ERRR to support the show. Please feel free to be cheeky and donate whatever minimum amount Patreon allows you to donate per month, and I'll still send the summary through to you. But if you do value the ERRR podcast as much as a cup of coffee or maybe a muffin each month, that could be one way to calibrate your support too. Right now, the majority of patrons contribute $5 per month with some particularly generous patrons contributing more as well. As soon as I see new patrons sign on, I'll shoot the summary their way straight away. So please consider joining the growing list of people to whom I am continually grateful for their support of the show. Now, let's jump back into this episode of the ERRR podcast with John Hollingsworth. The next thing we need to do is sometimes we need to develop skills. So if we know what a quadratic equation is, now we have to learn how to actually solve it, right. for example. So what is your approach to skills development, John? So content development is what circumference is. It's the distance around the circle. Teachers over and over say it's 2 pi r, it's 2 pi r. What's circumference? 2 pi r. No, circumference is if you put a tape measure around the circle, that's how long it would be. Mm. 3.14 times the circumference or 2 pi r, uh, 2 pi r. That's the concept development. Now we're going to solve some problems, right? And these might be word problems or something. So basically skill development is I'm going to solve the first one myself, and then I'm going to ask you how I solved it. And then you're going to solve the second problem, and you're going to explain to me how you solved it, okay? So if we were going to do circumference, it might be a word problem. So-and-so is building a round swimming pool. The radius is 10 feet. How long is the fence to go around the swimming pool? Okay, so now I have to explain how I took those words and came up with the formula. 
Now, I wish we had word problems that had more numbers in them. So there were more numbers than the kids used. Yeah. <laughs> I wish it says, class two is building a swimming pool. That 10 kids are going to swim in, yeah. Yeah, put 10 numbers in there. Anyway, so you're going to work the first one. You're going to explain to the kids where you got, where you used, uh, usually we give two formulas, two pi r and then pi d. I don't know if you've ever taught it that way, but because I have to select which equation I'm going to use. Since they gave me radius, I'm going to use the two pi r formula right here. Now, the r comes from right here. Now, this question didn't say radius. It, it might have said from the center of the pool to the outside is 10 meters because I know that's the radius because that's what the radius is. And so now the numbers came here. Now, the kids have to explain how did I come up with radius because it didn't use the word radius. Why did I pick that formula? So how did I come up with it? The arithmetic is, is different. That's multiplying the digits. We're not teaching arithmetic. We're teaching what? The idea of circumference and going from the word problem to the formula. So if you look at those questions, I think if you look on the page, what was I thinking when I read the problem? How did I decide which formula to use? Why did I put this number here? Those are the type of questions. Now, I'm going to tell you what most teachers do is they do the math with no explanation. They just start doing the numbers. And then they come up with the answer and say, how did I do it? And you say, I don't know. You just wrote numbers on the board. I have no idea where the number. You've done linear equations, haven't you? Yeah. 2x plus 5 equals 10. Okay, kids, so I subtract 5 from each side. I'm going to divide by 2, and I get x equals blah, blah, blah. Okay, how did I solve it? I don't know. You just wrote the numbers on the board just off the top of your head. You never said, you know, inverse operation. We added 5, so I'm going to subtract 5. So that gives me a 0. You know, you didn't explain your thinking. So one thing that makes the checking for understanding and skill development work is you have to model your thinking process and then ask the kids how you did it. If they cannot explain how you did it, it's reteach. That's great. And if people want to hear, I mean, another approach to this is actually just showing up, which is the way that we often see it in a, in a textbook, for example, that the solution will be worked already. And that, right. that's when you can just take the worked solution already and then use those questions like, what was the person solving the question thinking when they went from the first to the second line? That's you right. Know, how did they decide to divide by two? Things like that. Why did they multiply by three? Things like that. Right. And if listeners want to want to delve into this idea a bit more, Craig Barton did an excellent interview with Michael Pershin on the Mr. Barton Maths podcast, and I'll link to that in the show notes because it was it goes into this topic in a lot more detail, and it really it helped me to approach my teaching in a different way as well. So that's a, that's a great point. You've got to model your thinking. Mm. And I had that problem with my own consultants. I used to do training, you know, an EDR with my own consultants. I'd have them come up and teach a math lesson. And he taught the linear equation and he asked me, pretending I was a student. I said, I can't answer. I don't know how you did it. Mm. He taught it three times before he ever explained his thinking. He just kept writing the numbers. I think he'd done it for 30 years and he could not explain his thinking. And there's another piece of research here especially for math people. They are so good at math, they think everyone can do it. I don't even need to tell you how to do it. You probably had it in physics. Oh, V equals IR. This is so simple. No, you need to explain everything mm. to an overkill. Mm. Now, another thing that you mentioned within this is, and when we're trying to select kind of which types of examples to include, you, you touch upon the idea of variation. And you suggest that we need to teach every variation that students are likely to encounter. I've got a follow-up question for this, but do you want to expand upon that? Okay, let's go back to circumference. Uh, circumference is 2 pi r, right? Circumference 2 pi r. So I collected a worksheet from one of the biggest school districts in the country, 
They had 25 radiuses down, and the kids multiplied times 2 pi 25 times. There was no circles, no diagrams, nothing. Okay. So now, we, the regular problem usually is we give the radius or the diameter, and they have to calculate the circumference. But now, one of the variations is to give it in reverse. Give the circumference is 25 feet around this pool. What is the actual radius of the pool? And that's the reverse problem. And the kids get completely thrown off. They can't solve that problem. So one of our rules is to teach all the variations. Now in math, that's called teach all the unknowns. The circumference and radius would be the two unknowns in this case. And I'm going to tell you what's happening. The tests are testing that other one. They're testing the backwards one. Mm, okay. Now I do have a question because at, at year 12, and depending on the subject, but especially for high level math subjects, there are so many variations possible that in my experience, trying to teach all those variations is basically impossible. And also, even if you think you have, the examination writers will bring in another variation that's never come up on a past exam because they're trying to test that conceptual understanding. So what advice do you have in scenarios when there are going to be, you know, umpteen variations based on a single concept? Well, okay, let's do the back at the random error and systemic errors. We need to have problems that measure random error, and then we have, have to have other problems where people practice systemic errors. So those are the two would be the two variations for this one. Okay, I'm just saying for math, it solves circumference and solve the, the radius or diameter. It's just to solve the different variables in it. Now, most typical language lessons, when you say identify characters in a story, that's just repeated of the same thing. You're going to do it, and we would do it maybe by paragraph. Now, don't read a 50-page book or a 10-page article. Almost give me the character trait in the first paragraph, in the second paragraph, in the third paragraph. And character traits are determined by things they think, what they say, and what they do. So we need examples of character traits revealed through thought, through actions, and deeds. So those would be variations, different ways we reveal it. I think you've done setting. Setting a story where the story takes place. But the setting can also be time, seasonal, like Christmas season. The setting is not just always like my house or the forest. So make sure we have variation where the setting includes maybe a seasonal time, a, a day of time. And setting, I think, could also be, a, can it be like an attitude, like during 9-11, during a scary part or during war or something. So make sure we cover all the variations, not just the setting, name me, the physical location where they're sitting. Okay. Hi, listeners. We've just come back after a little break. And I realized that in the start of the interview, John mentioned a book they used in the early stages of EDI to help design the process. So I just thought I'd ask you, John, if you could explain to us that book and the role it played in the early stages of EDI. Well, if you remember when we started, oh, the name of the book is Handbook of Research on Teaching Third Edition. Now, make sure you get the third edition because this has the direct instruction chapter by Rosenshine in it. But if you get the next edition, they took direct instruction out. We were actually kind of surprised. I think that was that shift towards inquiry and other types of instruction. Okay. So you got to have this one. But you can find Rosenshine online, and he's written some articles. I don't know if I can find the article fast enough, but it's very close to what we're doing. I don't know if I can tab through here fast enough to find it. That's fine. And I mean, Tom Sherrington has just written a fantastic little book published by John Kett Education that really summarizes a, a lot of the Rosenstein's principles in a really digestible way. And also Craig Barton interviewed Tom Sherrington on that book, which, and I'll link to both of those things in the show notes. So that should be an accessible way for people to explore Rosenstein's work if they'd like to do so further. 
All right, let's 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 get back into this. So we've looked at TAPL, we've looked at skills development, we've looked at that in terms of the rule of two, which you called it, but others will call it example problem pairs. We've looked at variation. Another key idea within EDI, and it relates to kind of cognitive science of things like spaced repetition and retrieval practice, is the idea of periodic review. So John, in EDI, how do you suggest that people do periodic review and review concepts that have been seen you know, yesterday, last week, or last month. All right, so let's talk a little bit about brain research, okay? Mass practice, M-A-S-S-E-D, it's 16 to 24 repetitions to learn something. I think Marzano has that quote someplace. So when we read something, we pair share, we work a problem, we're actually getting a lot of repetition. The brain does not remember what we've said, unfortunately. We're not tape recorders, all right? So you need that repetition during the lesson. Now, you also need periodic review or distributed practice over time. And it's actually called the uh, curve of forgetting. It was a scientist in Germany in the 1800s. He tried to memorize numbers. And he realized by the next day, he'd forgot most of them. And there's a curve that just goes like this. And by day 30, he'd forgotten almost all of it. So your brain will not retain something from a one-time learning episode. And you've probably given kids uh, like a some type of a big test. And they say, you never taught that. That's because it was 30 days ago and they forgot. <laughs> so we tell schools every place now, you need to build in periodic review. So his research was you need to review it again the second day. And most of these lessons are taught over two days, by the way. So you've got all the amounts you're going to learn the first day. Then you need to repeat it a few minutes for the second day. Then you need to repeat it a few minutes a week later. And then a few minutes a couple of weeks later. And see how it's getting further and further apart. Okay. And that curve of forgetting that drops down gets pushed back up every time you review it. I don't know if you've heard of a process called Cornell Notes. Have you ever heard of that? Yeah. Okay. It's instructional practice. And people say, well, it's folding the paper over, writing questions, and answering by unfolding your notes. Actually, the professor, I've forgotten his name now, who started that, the review is the secret part of Cornell Notes. You're supposed to review it a day later, a week later, and a month later. It's the periodic review is the scientific part of it. Now, we had a high school history teacher one time. He said, kids, you don't have to study anymore in my class. Yay, we don't have to study. All you have to do is go home and read your notes. Don't study, just read them. And once you go home and read them and then read them a few days later. And he said, actually, that part just worked. It, it became periodic review. Now, let me ask you about how your schools are. How are schools doing periodic review right now? Oh, that's that's a great segue into the last podcast I did, actually, John. So if listeners haven't heard that already, the previous podcast was on spaced repetition software, which right. takes this approach to the next level. Um, and I've been experimenting with that for the last few years. But in terms of most schools, I think that probably, and the research by people like Rodiger and Karpiki suggests this, that we're not doing it. We're not doing it well enough, and that's leading to a lot of forgetting. So please, that's why I'm, in many ways, I'm, I'm keen to hear your take on this, John. What does EDI suggest we do in terms of periodic review? Okay, if the full EDI lessons, if you look at them on the edusary, they have the full lesson up the closure, they have independent practice, and they have three periodic reviews. So we've actually built them into the lesson. We haven't paced them and told you when to do it, but they're built in. But I need to do one more thing on periodic review. I had a teacher said, we're going to do review every day. Well, principal, the whole school, we're going to review for the first five minutes. They put problems up on the board, and only half the kids got them right or could solve them. Yep. It's all these kids. They're not paying. No, no. They don't remember how to solve it. They don't remember. So here's the rule. And you take this down as a note. 
when you do periodic review, you need to do one first or remind the kids how to do it, or the kids who don't remember don't do anything because they have no resource, no brain power to do it with. Now, either put a work problem on the board or say, kids, get out your notes, read your notes from yesterday, now work these problems I've got up here. You need to facilitate some way for them to reactivate their brains. And don't make it a quiz. A quiz is, you're not trying to quiz if they remembered, you're trying to get repetitions to hardwire the brain to remember it. So it's impossible. Schools don't have it in the, every case encounter we've made, we built it in. So here's some alternative ones. Every other Monday, we're going to do an hour of review. Every Friday, we're going to do some review. Once a month, I don't have the principal just say, okay, the whole school is going to do review on the first and third Mondays or Tuesdays of the school. And that's about the only way to, to force it. Otherwise, your patient calendar is so convoluted, you've got all these reviews, part of one and another one, they're all coming out at the same time. But a true patient calendar, when we do it, we build it in. I think schools should just pick a dedicated time. They're going to do it. And remember, teacher, you have to work one first. Now, I can give you one more example. I walked in with a principal one time, and the sub is just standing there, and all the kids are working. And the principal says, so what are the kids doing? Oh, they're practicing for the test. So get up and teach them some problems. <laughs> Take those review problems, and you go up and work one, then ask them to work one. Work another one, ask them to do it. That rule of two works great for review problems, by the way. You work one, have them do whiteboards, hold up, explain the partner. Quickly do another one, hold up, and explain. But don't just have them sit at the table and work by themselves. It's not helping them really get any better. Actions to reverse. The kids who already know it are getting better. They're getting brain repetition. The kids who need it the most aren't working if they don't remember how to do it. There, there is one challenge to this, and that is that a retrieval, a retrieval episode will be more impactful if the students have to actually retrieve the information based upon a weaker memory than if they're kind of shown how to do it straight away just beforehand. If people want a, a bit more detail on that, they can go to the Craig Barton episode Mr. Barton Maths podcast episode with Robert and Elizabeth Bjork. I don't know, ha have you come across this research and, and how, how is this factored in? I understand there are the practical limits of you end up with some students who have no idea what they're doing and some who, <laughs> who, who, are, who are managing if you, if you just kind of put the question up without working example first. But is there a trade-off that you're making there in that if you were just getting students to retrieve the information without working a problem first, for the students who could retrieve it, that would be a more powerful learning episode? Well, I know if you just say, kids, we did circumference last week, calculate these five circumference problems. The kids who have forgotten, get nothing out of it. Nothing. So at least put the formula on the board. You know, put something. You may not work a problem first. I'm not saying you need to work them, but you need to facilitate for the kids who have forgotten. They've got a resource, a handout, a chart, a table, somewhere to look in the room. Otherwise, they're just sitting there not doing anything. Okay. So my understanding is that the, the research on what the Bjorks called desirable difficulties and especially in terms of the idea of the retrieval effect or kind of the, the testing effect or the generation effect, is that memory is encoded most powerfully if the memory is weaker at the time of retrieval. So the most impactful retrieval instance that you can have is if you can only just remember the content and then you retrieve it, and that will actually increase the storage strength of that memory to the greatest effect. Then another way to look at this is, Say I tell you something straight away, so I tell you this definition of a systematic error, and then I ask you straight away. You repeating that up back to me straight away is not as powerful a learning experience as if I told you and said, I'm going to ask you back this tomorrow, and then you were able to tell me tomorrow. Telling me tomorrow would be a more powerful learning experience than today. So I think there's some trade-off that we're yeah. making when we kind of scaffold it for students. 
but also, you know, there's also the challenge that if students can't retrieve it, then getting them sitting there when they can't do anything provides no instructional learning benefit. Yeah, I, I think we can work some middle ground, but for the kids who don't remember at all, you've got to do something. I'll give you an example. The math facts is a very simple one. Six times eight is 48. So you chant. Six times eight is 48. Six times eight is 48. You're firing a neural path between those two in your brain. It's oozing some myelin, I think it's called, where you're chanting that. And by the time you've oozed enough of it, it's like you've got a wire to go down there and get it. That's it's retrievable. So you say, how come your kids don't know six times eight? They can't give me the answer. I said, because it's not in the brain to be retrieved. No amount of cheering or struggling is not to be retrieved. So we need to work on getting some basic stuff in. And that's, uh, there's other ways, there's memory tricks and stuff. But part of it is that enough repetition and the periodic review to get it in there so it can be retrieved later. And you know, it's funny, if you have stuff on the wall, I think when you have testing, you have to take those posters down, don't you? Mm-hmm. I think you do. But I think there's research that says the kids just looking over there helps them remember. Yeah. <laughs> have you ever heard that? Yeah, I think it's called context-dependent memory or something like that. Yeah, there is. A, so it's interesting. But I mean, I have resources so kids can come up with their stuck. They can do something. Mm, that makes sense. Now, you, you, you mentioned there's kind of two challenges as well. There's the benefit of retrieval really happens when we are able to do it, for example, a day later, a week later, and then a month later or something like that. There are, there are more optimum schedules than that, but that's one, one approach. But obviously, if we dedicate only the first and third Monday within our school to retrieval practice then that's gonna, that doesn't enable us to kind of review every concept the day after. So are there any schools that you've come across that have actually developed these, before you refer to them as pacing schedules or pacing structures, uh-huh. that actually enable that review in an optimal way? Are there any schools you've actually come across who do that? Well, I can tell you, are you familiar? We were part of a big government grant in Australia to improve learning in remote Aboriginal villages. Okay. And we worked for like four years on a multi-million dollar federal government grant. Grant wasn't our grant, but we were part of it. Edusary actually came out of that curriculum. We wrote two and a half hours a day. So we had two and a half hours a day, and we actually put the periodic review every day, the two days, the seven days, and the 15 days, because we had complete control, and we had two and a half hours to do it. Wow. Okay, now. Two and a half hours of review every day. No, no, not review. Two and a half hours of, of English literacy every day. Instruction. Two and a half hour block. Okay, got it. So maybe we'd have one new EDI lesson. We'd have a couple periodic reviews. We'd have some, some you know, worksheets or some independent practice. But we had plenty of time to do it. Now, when you're in high school, you've got, how many minutes are your classes? Every school's different, but usually something between 45 and 70. Yeah, so 45 minutes. You can't do review from yesterday, from one week ago, from two weeks ago. You know, pretty soon those review days pile on top of each other. Mm-hmm. So I just said, as an alternative, to at least get something in there. Let's at least pick a couple of days a month where we'll just do review problems. Okay. And don't you have kids work by themselves? You need to facilitate a little bit. I would put a problem on the board, give a couple of hints, whiteboards, everybody comes up. Give a couple of hints how the next part, whiteboards, everybody comes up. Don't just have the kids work by themselves. Totally. And that's, I mean, definitely infinite time is better than never reviewing the concept again. And, I, and I'm sure we can both agree on that. Another thing you touched on the BIC was this idea of teach on grade level. And you, you said, you know, I can't emphasize this enough. We may sound like we are a broken record, but students must be taught on grade level. Right. What about the idea of this, students who aren't ready to learn at this level? They're not at grade level. You know, you're teaching year five maths, but you've got kids in there at year two or three level. How does EDI account for that? I think what we want to do is we want to reduce the sub-skills, but not the grade level concepts. I'll give you a couple of examples. Do you have special ed students or special needs students in your schools? We do. 
what term do you use for them? Sometimes learning difficulties, special needs. Yeah, I, I'm not sure what the, the most appropriate term is at this point in time. Okay, but you understand what I'm talking about. Indeed. Okay, so a special needs student. So I was at a high school and the principal asked the student, how well did you do on the high school math test to get out of, you know, to get through high school? And he said, I've never been taught anything on that test. I've added and subtracted for 12 years. I said, he never had the opportunity. He was never exposed to grade level concept. Okay, now, could we have done a lesson like this? Volume is length times width times height. Kids, this is two inches by two inches by two inches. Can you calculate the volume and write on your whiteboard? This box is 17 by 24 by 18 centimeters. Get your calculators out, calculate the volume, and be ready to tell me the volume of the box is blank and how you did it. Could we teach that? Sure we could, even though the kids don't know the math, so we, we get stuck. In Australia, there's a standard about every literature story must start by naming the people, I'm pointing to myself, the people, the place, I'm pointing around the room, and the problem, I'm holding my head like there's a problem. And I use that gesture, remember gestures is one of our things. Mm -hmm. So how do we start a story? We identify the people, the place, and the problem, right? The principal came up to me, this is in Australia, a remote Aboriginal village someplace, and the principal came up and says, you won't believe, so-and-so came up and told me you start a story by introducing the people, telling where the story is taking place and introducing the problem. And that kid in fifth grade cannot read at all. But he still got the concept out of your lesson. So I didn't let reading stop me. In fact, I didn't even know at the time. I did the chanted reading. We did the gestures together. So he got something out of the lesson. So I think now what I want to differentiate, I'm not going to drop down. What I'm going to do is drop the subskill. The subskill is arithmetic and is reading. We can still learn what any kid can learn, what the theme is, what the main idea is. Uh, we know these things from movies and stuff, figurative language. They can be poor readers and still do it. So here's the final one. Remediation, helping the low-performing students. Remediation should be done in addition to, not in place of, grade-level content. Let's keep the kids up on grade-level ideas. Okay. We spent years doing that at DataWorks. We were like a broken record. <laughs> Dear listeners, another break, but this time of a different sort. I recently had the idea of starting a new micro-segment into the ERRR podcast to break things up for listeners, but also as a way to highlight some of the fantastic work being done in the education space by not-for-profits. This brief new break is entitled Feature Not-for-Profit, and this month we hear from Lachlan Carter from 100 Story Building. I'll let Lachlan speak for his organization and the fantastic work they do, but I'm sure you'll agree that the mysterious and intriguing happenings at 100 Story Building are well worth exploring further. I'll include all links mentioned by Lachlan in the show notes. So here we go with the first ever featured not-for-profit segment of the ERRR podcast. Hello, ERRR listeners. I'm Lachlan Carter, the CEO of 100 Story Building. I'm really excited to have the opportunity to highlight our work as the featured not-for-profit for this episode of the ERRR podcast. 100 Story Building is a centre for young writers based in Footscray, and our whole purpose for being is to help children and young people get excited about writing, to help them unpack the creative process. And we work with teachers as well in understanding how to get children excited, to design creative literacy programs that inform their teaching and get both teachers and students excited about the creative process. 
Since 2013, we've been working with children and young people from across Melbourne. Uh, we've had about 30,000 program participants across a range of programs from one-off workshops through to year-long partnerships where we work with schools on creating their own creative space within the school setting. Uh, I should mention here that 100-storey building is also a building with 100 storeys. So our space in Footscray, we're situated on level 100, and down the back corner there's a trapdoor that takes you down to the 99 floors underground. We keep that locked at the moment because there's a jungle growing out from it. We don't want to lose any more children. We've had a really good year in 2019. But our notice board and our lost and found box give us a little bit of a, a hint about what goes on under there. And so every child who walks through the doors... They help us try and figure out what goes on underneath the trapdoor, and so they continue to create and contribute to the story of this space. If you're interested in finding out more about 100 Story Building or want to get involved, you can do that through a number of ways, by donating your time or resources. You can book a workshop if you're a teacher, or by buying one of our publications, the latest of which, which was launched in November, is called Sound of the Dark, and it's an anthology of creepy horror stories curated and edited by an editorial committee of grade five and six children from a bunch of schools in Dandenong. It's an amazing read. We'd love you to purchase a copy and all proceeds go back into supporting that program to be delivered to more children across Victoria. For more information, you can check us out at 100 Story Building. That's S-T-O-R-Y-B-U-I-L-D-I-N-G dot org dot A-U. Enjoy the rest of the episode. Now, We've talked a lot about EDI. You talked about how you had two and a half blocks within that big government initiative. To your mind, how much time should actually be spent on EDI? And and I could kind of I could kind of frame this in terms of a question that came from Ray Gowlett on Twitter, who asked, "Sometimes EDI and discovery learning are pitched as mutually exclusive. Do you hold that position? And can there be an optimal mix? And how does that optimal mix vary from course to course or age to age group to age group, etc." Well, let me give you a couple thoughts. You're familiar with the Common Core standards in the United States? Okay, and you probably had new standards. I know that you've had new standards around the same time, didn't you? I'm not sure. It's kind of state of the art. Everybody moved up one level of revising their standards to be more rigorous. Okay, there was a move in the United States to go to this inquiry learning at that time. Okay, so we get called into a school in LA. They're doing a, I think it was a, 120 minute block, a really long block. One third of it was to be direct instruction. One third was to be inquiry, group learning, and one third was to be the internet part. So they were doing it right there. So they brought us in to just to do the direct instruction part. So you might say in this classroom was one third of the time direct instruction, inquiry, group work, and then internet, working on the internet. So that's they brought us to do that part. But the problem was we didn't see that the direct instruction part was good enough. It was hand waivers, you know what I mean? We didn't read anything. It could have been so much better. So we tried to get them to do more of this, have the kids read with you, call non-volunteers, be ready to teach, reteach if you have to. Science is a tricky one because we want to do experiments in science. But the kids need to understand what they're doing first, some conceptual knowledge, and then they can do the experiments after that. And Sylvia will always say EDI is the best for the initial teaching, the initial teaching of new concepts. You don't need a full EDI lesson to review, to practice for tests, but you could still use what? The engagement norms or checking for understanding. I think you can use these anytime you're teaching anything. Now, if you've got some concept like volume, the kids are not going to come up with volume on their own. 
get in your group and tell me what volume is. I saw this. Get in your group and tell me Ohm's law. Voltage equals amps times resistance. They're just not going to come up with this stuff on their own. They're not going to come up with figurative language. They need to be taught something and then apply it to some situation or use it. So a lot of stuff you, I don't think kids can come up. We shouldn't use group work to come up with fundamental principles. Group work is to practice and apply something we've been taught. And that's actually in our EDI training someplace. If I can read you the quote, small group and independent problems and projects can be effective, not as vehicles for making discoveries, but as a means of practicing recently learned content and skills. So we like to say EDI is for initial instruction. Then go ahead and use all the other stuff. But the kids have got some background or something to do it with. Is there an optimal mix? Because, I mean, schools have to often kind of specify or we're going to spend these lessons on EDI or this portion of the lesson, then we're going to go into these more inquiry. Is there an optimal mix to your mind that you've seen work really well? Well, I'm going to have to say I don't have a number there to quote off the top of my head. I don't like to say stuff, and I really kind of have a, a firm background in either research or in practices. Most of the schools we work with, we're being called in to improve low-performing students and to improve engagement at the school level. And EDI seems to be, they, they want to get more engagement, and EDI seems to be the method to bring more engagement and more learning to the students. Next question. What can't EDI do, if anything? So at the start of the podcast, you talked about how the goal is to prepare role of education. I can't remember your exact phrasing, but it was something along the lines of prepare students to be 21st century citizens or to have, mm -hmm. have success in the 21st century within our society, something like that. Is that representative of what you said? Yes. So is there anything within that that EDI can't do? Well, I'm trying to think of everything to do it. One of the big researchers that started with us, he was a professor at a medical school. And he says, we use direct instruction to teach brain surgery, I think it was. I would never do inquiry to do brain surgery. I would explain the whole thing first. I would do it first as the doctor and they would all watch me. They would not come in until they were going to repeat and practice what I'm going to do. I think it's used in the military for driving submarines or something. So direct instruction is kind of used every place. I took a flying lesson in a small plane. You know, in Australia, we flew around in small planes all the time. That's the only way you can get around. And I actually took flying lessons, and I asked the teacher, can you explain to me how you line up the plane to land? And he said, well, I can't really explain. I just, I just kind of know how to do it. And my next sentence was, then you can't teach me how to do it because you can't explain your thinking. And I actually held up the EDI book. I said, you need to model your thinking of how to do this so you can show me how to do it. So... I think the debate sometimes is stuff called critical thinking, higher order thinking, and stuff like that. And I'm not sure we teach critical thinking. We want kids to be critical thinkers, but we don't have any criteria of how to do it. We taught a lesson the other day in giving PowerPoint presentations. Do you have a standard? Do you have kids give presentations to your schools? We do. Okay. So the teacher says, okay, get up. He said, what are we doing here? Oh, the kids are just working on their presentation for days. They're just sitting there typing. I said, we have no criteria for the presentation. So the EDI consultant came and said, we're going to make some criteria. You're going to have a statement on each page of something you're talking about. You're going to have a picture to illustrate what you're talking about. And you're going to ask the audience a question about it. It was actually like concept development, wasn't it? A statement, an illustration of it. And that's how you're going, you're going to stand up, tell the audience the information, explain what it means using the photo or the chart or the diagram. And then you're going to ask them a question to tell something about it. All of a sudden, we have some criteria. So the kids were not becoming good presenters by working by themselves 
searching the internet for slides to paste in. They didn't improve till our presenter said, you're going to do these things. You're going to have something, you're going to explain it, you're going to show what it means with a visual, and you're going to ask the class. All of a sudden, everybody became a better presenter. So I think we need some criteria. We're actually kind of, we've got some techniques. That, you probably don't do anything in writing, do you? No, not much. Okay. A, small, a very small Typical amount, yeah. thing. Well, you can imagine what the typical young writer is. We got in the car, we went to the park, we got something to eat, then we went home. It's then, 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 then. Okay, I would say now. Part of things in writing is describing the setting. So when you say, we got in the car, I want you to tell me what your car looked like. Oh, it's an old yellow SUV. We drove to the park. Tell me three sentences about the park. There were a lot of trees. Tell me how hot it was, okay? Tell me, we rode the right. Describe the right. This thing is already better now because I want you to write three sentences. Every time you move someplace, write me three sentences of what it looks like. And that's talent development. All of a sudden, everybody's essay goes like this. But to just say, get in your group or just write more, I don't think kids can necessarily get better writers unless they have some technique. Oh, we'll come back to the question. So the question I asked was, what can't EDI do, if anything? An example that kind of is, will scaffold this discussion a little bit comes from Jacinta Conway on Twitter. And I'd like to acknowledge Jacinta. I think she was the first patron of the ERRR podcast. So thanks for that, Jacinta. But Jacinta asks, I'm interested in the social and emotional capabilities and how these can be explicitly taught using EDI. Often these are embedded into units, if at all, rather than being taught and addressed explicitly. So, for example, from the Australian curriculum, we've got the idea of social awareness, which is described as this element involves students recognising others' feelings and knowing how and when to assist others. Students learn to show respect for and understand others' perspectives, emotional states and needs. They learn to participate in positive, safe and respectful relationships, etc. So is this something that EDI can address? And if so, how would EDI address this? Okay. So let's see if we can circle the concepts that we need to teach. Students learn to show respect for and understand. What's the next one? Perspectives, emotional states, and what's the third one? Needs. So we need to define what are perspectives, and now we need to say, now what affects perspective? It'd be your growing up, your parents, your school, your community, right? Emotional states, tell me what emotional states means, something, maybe something not rationally justified, and then we need to say things that affect emotional states. All right, the third one was needs. We can talk about physical needs, what emotional needs, what they are, and what affect them. So let's just start at the thing written definitions and labeled examples. So we're going to define perspectives, emotional states, and needs, and then we're going to what? Give examples of what they are. Now, how are we going to apply this? I think one way I like to do EDI is we use what are called scenarios. So couldn't we drive a scenario of a child at school someplace and we can apply the principles, what perspective are we seeing, what emotional states are we seeing, and what needs are we seeing? Let's see what else I got here. Advocacy of contemporary society. We have to teach what advocacy means and the views we have now, probably how it's changed over time. Okay, so what I'm what I'm hearing is you actually you are advocating for teaching these kind of soft skills, we could say, through EDI. Have you done this? Have you developed lessons on these kind of things in the past? I think when we did the Australia curriculum, we did not do some of the social ones. We were more on the like the, the pure literacy ones. I could have to go back and look at it and see if we did it. But I just know right here. The concepts are the nouns. So they're perspective, emotional states, needs, advocacy, critique, society, constructs. I think that'd be one. Uh, you can define what discrimination, what racism, what sexism are, define what those are, and then give scenarios and they have to identify, is this 
discrimination or racism or discrimination on sexism or you know, which, which category is it and why? Okay, maybe I'll frame the question in, in another way. If you were the prin- – I mean, Sylvia was the principal of a school, right? And she was trying right. to probably develop the whole child, to use one phrase, and that's commonly referred to. So, you know, you're using EDI in these lots of cases. If, it's, if a teacher came to – or if, if a parent, should I say, came to her and said, you know, I want to see that my student's developing social awareness, is – and if you were running a school today, would the way that you would do that be to develop – would you say the parent – oh, yes, we're supporting your child to develop social awareness. We do this through this lesson. Have a look at this PowerPoint that we've developed to teach them the verbs and nouns associated with social awareness. Or would you take some other non-EDI approach? I'm curious as to your thoughts on this subject. Well, if I had to write my own lessons, it would be kind of like what I just told you. I'm just going to tell you what schools do as a practical matter because I see this all over the place. They just go out and they buy a program. Mm Mm-hmm. Some very common programs in the United States. The school goes out and buys a program. It has posters. Uh, they have little chants. They, maybe they wear certain things certain times. They watch little videos and stuff. So those are not taught as EDI lessons. They're usually, uh, I can almost say, subcontracted out to a, a program. They just buy a program that does it. But I see them in schools all the time. Uh, being respectful for each other, not yelling at each other, not arguing, not raising your voice you know, taking your turn at school. So there, there's some very standard ones that are kind of taught. In, most of these are in elementary school, I think. So, okay, you take more of an EDI approach. No, it could thinking. be taught in EDI. I've never, I don't think I've seen it. We don't write these lessons because okay. our focus is English and math. Really, English is the biggest. Yeah, totally. If I were doing it, it would be like I said, but most people have bought a canned program that includes all the mechanics of doing it. Got it. I'll come back at you there, John. We're, 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 I'll flag that we're into the testing phase of the podcast now, where I'm kind of pushing back a little bit and testing some of your ideas. Is EDI not a canned program? How is EDI not a canned program? You're kind of speaking in a kind of negative way about other canned programs. So talk us through that. Well, let me think what canned means. If you could say like necessary lessons are pre-written, I mean, we've written them for you. Most schools kind of write their own lessons once they learn EDI. The edutory lessons are already written. They've got all the strategies there. Now, the one thing that's not written in them is, of course, all the things you're going to do, the pronunciation, the checking for understanding, the corrective feedback, and all the interaction with the students. Engagement norms, yeah. Yeah. So I guess Australia was the closest we had to. We had two and a half hours a day. We had it all laid out for six years, and the teachers taught it, and they were in very difficult situations, if you can understand, way in the outback, way out. And they didn't really have good internet connection or even the ability to Xerox stuff and stuff. So they kind of taught day to day as we laid out the lessons. But I went to all those schools or most of them and did coaching and stuff. And even they needed to make some instructional decisions based on the kids and how fast they were going and how to speed up and slow down the stuff. And is that what you do to help support schools to not feel like the EDI approaches can, to really provide that structure and that support about developing the teacher to have the skills to know when and how to use which engagement norm and things like that? Well, I'm going to tell you this. You've probably had training at your school, haven't you? All teachers have had In some ways. professional development. Yeah. Okay. Teachers kind of hate it. <laughs> they want to be left alone. But I mean, our stuff, usually as we start presenting it, it's so self-evident. Oh, of course I should pronounce this word. Oh yeah, let's use complete sentence. Oh, the kids look at you. And we play little videos. Oh, the kids sound so smart. So we rarely get pushback because the, nobody can argue that I shouldn't work a problem first, explain how I do it, you know, match the grade level standards. So I think EDI, well, we're 
standalone or EDI to do everything. I'm not saying we're a whole school, like a whole day of everything, right? But for our part of it, we kind of stand and said, this is kind of the way you should teach new stuff. This is how you should check for understanding. This is the type of engagement you should do. I guess we have a phrase, data works never yields. <laughs> yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And, and you have chosen your niche and you've said, this is a really highly effective way to teach new content and new concepts and make it accessible to people and get them off to a strong start. And I, I really respect that, that you've chosen that niche and you've kind of really honed in and said, um, how can we do this as best we can and how can we support teachers to do this as well? And other people are focused on how to do group work and generate into thinking. People may like to listen to my discussion with Neil Mercer or you know pro project-based learning, which I've, I've explored in other podcasts as well. But you, you've really picked your niche and, and you're doing a fantastic job with it of that. So, I guess I wanted to acknowledge that. Something that I did think about when I was looking through this EDI stuff uh, and when I was thinking about how to approach it in my own classroom was the time demands of creating lessons that are these, this structured. And I guess that's partly why you've developed Educeria to support teachers. But really, if a whole school, say if I wanted to turn every single one of my year 12 physics classes into an EDI-based lesson, that would take me, I mean, they're, they're very much towards the ED, EDIs already, but it would take me so long to develop these slideshows that have these pop-up things and right. text boxes circled, et cetera, et cetera. What advice do you have for teachers who want to try EDI or even schools that want to adopt EDI, given the, the massive kind of upfront time demands of developing these resources? All right. Well, first of all, the norms, the complete sentences, the whiteboards, you can do that with anything. So this you can just implement from day one. And I see that same problem. Even when we write lessons here, it just takes us so long to write them, to debug them, to automate them and everything. So in the last few years, we've changed to this. Can we just teach you how to teach your book? Now, I have put books up. Uh, do you have document cameras? Have you ever used doc cameras? I just bought one the other day, yeah. Okay, but you know what they are. Don't you have books on PDFs sometimes? Yeah, PDFs, probably how, and projectors is how most teachers probably do it. Okay, so I put up a book, and uh, one time I just said, get up and teach it. So I just put the book under the camera, and I could look in a hurry, and I said, this is the definition right here. This is it. It's kind of buried. It's off to the side. It's in a box. It's in the notes, but this is what it is. All right. Now, here's some problems on the next page. Now, they don't have checking for understanding, but I can come up with that myself. They sometimes have a learning objective over on the side, and I can, as a standard, I can clean that up. So I can almost teach out of a book. Uh, math is fairly easy. They've got pages of problems. They usually have a couple of worked problems. They've got definitions if you look for them. Now, sometimes teachers get bogged down. They're teaching worksheets. I kind of call it that worksheet curriculum. And they're teaching the sheets how to answer the question, but they're not teaching conceptually. Okay. You know, I saw a lesson one time. What's on the, what do we write to the teacher? Note. What do we do something? Nose. And they answered that question. What's the end of my face? Nose. The lesson was actually silent E, N-O-T-E, N-O-S-E. Reading words are silent E. It was never mentioned in the entire lesson. The kids just answered questions. What do I write? Note. What's the end of my face? Nose. So we need some conceptual teaching. If we don't have a full EDI lesson, we need some concepts, conceptual teaching before we start working stuff. Now, let's go back to what I'm trying to do. It says, can we teach out of the book? So I see a high school lesson, and they're saying, he's as tall as a giraffe, he ran like a deer, these are similes, blah, 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 right? And then the question came up, what's a simile? 
No one could answer because there was not a definition of assembly ever given. We just taught by examples. So I'm going to tell you one big thing, right? Look in your book and find the concept. It's in there someplace. It's just not always in a box like it is with EDI. Now, there's a works problem someplace. Now, you explain every number in there where it came from. Now, you pick a problem here. The number two problem in your book probably won't match. So I tell teachers, get a sticky or get some pencils and write down number one for the teacher, number 12 for the students, number three for the teacher, 18 for the students, so that you can find those match pairs. The next one is the homework must match what you taught. Don't teach algorithms and go to word problems. You know what I mean? Okay, so. So the three things you can do, look for the definitions, find the match problems, and make sure the homework matches. And I think you could do that just in a couple of minutes. That's a, that's a great suggestion, you know, using existing resources and teaching the engagement norms and teaching the structure of EDI as a framework around the resources that you've already got. I wanted to talk yeah. now a little bit about the idea of kind of developing learners. So a criticism I've heard of EDI is that if we use EDI, for example, all the way from primary all the way up to year 12 and then students go to university for example and they've they've been taught by edi highly effective edi their whole life then they come to university and they've got some lecture droning on at the front of the class for for 90 minutes they're not equipped to actually work out how to garner any learning from that type of environment and they, they they're not going to have adapted so is there any way that you kind of fade the edi towards the end towards the later years of school or or how does edi or how does EDI not, and that's a totally fine answer as well, account for this kind of a jump between instructional approaches between what could and does happen in some schools and maybe higher education or even going from primary to secondary school? Well, that's a good insight because I've heard that exact same question. So I go into class and the teacher is still uses the word droning or they're just lecturing the whole time. The kids are taking random notes. There's nothing to read. They're just reading from notes they've prepared like five or ten years ago. And I said, it would be better if you had some text and the kids, no, no, I'm preparing them for college because that's how they're going to be taught in college. My basic response is it would be better if they knew more before they went to college. They just play new, more content. This is not the most effective way to learn. Now, in other words, kids do not know how to take notes. They don't know what's important, what's not important. If they're highlighting, they highlight the whole paragraph, the whole, you've probably seen kids do that. And I said, we need to know how to highlight. Let's work on what we're going to highlight. The fewer words you highlight, the more strategic the knowledge is. You just can't highlight the whole paragraph and, and make those big things. So kids are not taught how to organize the information, how to use some structure, compare and contrast, main ideas, supporting details. So I think if we're going to use a lecture format, we should what? First of all, they need to read some text because we're not reading at all. We're just listening to the teacher. And then we need to teach them how to take some notes. But I think the basic thing is the kids just plain need to know more. They would know more if we had instruction was text-based and they actually did more, they would retain more. That relates a lot to my podcast with Natalie Wexler on the knowledge gap and the role of knowledge in supporting students to learn and to, to overcome poverty and things like that. So that's a, that's a really inter interesting take, John. <laughs> do you do EDI lessons on note-taking and things like that to, to kind of try to smooth that, smooth that transition in any way? Well, we are such sticklers to teaching the standards. If I ever read a standard someplace, take notes or something, I would teach it. I don't think I've ever seen it. To watch it would, it would come from a standard. We probably would not. We've, no, I don't think we've written one just on our own, though we haven't. But I think that's something to do. I cue kids in lessons. I like to have kids highlight stuff a lot. It's a cognitive strategy. It keeps them busy. They look down, they're doing something. 
And I will cue them the things to highlight and not to highlight the whole sentence and just a few key words. Then I might ask them, what are you going to highlight in the next sentence? So I will integrate it into lessons, but I've never done a whole lesson on actually how to do that. Actually, that would be a good lesson. Okay. The ultimate thing we care about, John, of course, is student outcomes. And we've, we've alluded to that several times today. But in terms of that, we really want to ask, what is the evidence base for a particular approach working? So I'll bring this to you through the lens of, a, of someone on Twitter, Aja Carrizzo, who asked, is the evidence base secure for explicit direct instruction? Put another way, what evidence is there or how do we know that EDI actually works? Do you have studies? Do you have RCTs? Do you have data? How do we know it works? Well, a true tier one is an experimental group and a control group randomly divided. We've gone to a couple of schools and tried to do that, and no school was willing to do it. They just wanted everyone to have EDI, so we never could come up with a control group. A quasi-experimental study is you take your school and then find matching ones in California and yours also in Australia. You can go on the internet and probably get test scores all over the country, and you can compare yours to others. And so we have done those studies to show we work. One thing that is amazing is the teachers say it work and the students say it work. And I can't tell you the number of times I've done a demo lesson and the kids run up at the end of the lesson and said, can you be our teacher? Will you be our teacher from now on? Every consultant has heard that because it's just so engaging to the kids. Most people just kind of see it, but we actually do not have a true research random sample of EDI. Now, every strategy we've used I think I have 167 sites in the back of the EDI book. Things like wait time, pair share, checking for understanding, learning objective, guided practice. Every one of those specific ones has all kinds of support on it. And it's Madeline Hunter and all kinds of people. that There's lots of support for all of them. What we don't have is a true research of DataWorks EDI. And it turns out no schools demanded it. They like what it looks like. They like the interaction with the kids. They like the strategies. They just they just want to do it. So I usually don't need to convince a school. Yeah, yeah. Well, let me back up one second. Let's do the thing about the different types of DI because EDI has gotten a bad name because I think they've thought about that scripted direct instruction program. Okay. There's one where they just they, the teacher just reads the thing. The kids just chant after them. Sometimes they have a little cue, a clap, or a click, or something. The kids just chant. There's no transfer of knowledge other than just plain chanting. And they think EDI is the teacher talking all the time. And EDI is the reverse. EDI is the kids parasharing, track reading, explaining their answers, talking to their partners. So EDI is actually very interactive with the students. It's not just the teacher talking. In fact, I say you shouldn't talk more than two minutes. If you go more than two minutes, you've talked too long. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, maybe something you'd like to do, John, is you know, paint a picture, given that we haven't got these RCTs, paint a picture of a school you've worked with and how EDI has turned that school around. Well, when we first started in California, they were had this big pressure on test scores and they identified underperforming schools, so they would call us in to do it. And this would probably be five or six years ago, one of the most famous ones was a whole underperforming district. And we got called in to switch the whole school to EDI. And they were one of the most turned around schools, I guess, in California, their district in California. And they were so famous. People drove all over the place to see their instruction. And once they saw it, it was EDI. Then they called us and it actually turned out to be a benefit for us. So that was the most famous one, a school district in, in central California. I've been back to New York several times. So I'm doing training back there. 
I don't know. Do you use the term English learners in your schools? Uh, yeah, EAL, English as an additional language is the most common in yeah. Australia. Yeah, so we've worked a lot with those, and we work with a school in Southern California that'd be right near the Mexican border, which was mostly maybe 90% Spanish-speaking or even 100% Spanish-speaking. And they made, they were one of those other schools that made that uh, goal, the state goal, and not every school made it, but they did a massive turnaround. And they were kind of famous about that for a while, too. So we've had a lot of individual schools here and there. We've had a couple studies were written because of other schools. They weren't written for us directly. They're really written for the district to do it. So anyway, we have a lot of schools and it's becoming, I think our best thing is self-evident. We used to have to convince people. We don't convince people anymore. When they see pair shares, check for understanding, written definitions, it's like, wow, this is what we should be doing. A lot of people just say, oh, EDI is just good teaching. <laughs> and, and, you know, we didn't make up anything. We made up a form called student engagement. But mm -hmm. pronouncing words, reading, gesture, pair share, whiteboards, complete sentence, none of this is completely new. It's just we put it all together and we're going to do it. This is how we're going to check for understanding. This is how we're going to come up with a learning objective. So we operationalize a lot of very common type of things. We might move into some closing questions now, John, if that works for you. Okay. What advice would you give to your earlier self? I've heard this from every consultant that's ever worked for DataWorks. Most of our consultants are at retirement age. They're superintendents, principals, lead teachers, and they're looking for something else to do. Every one of them says, I wish I knew this when I was a teacher. <laughs> Even Sylvia, who taught physics that I wish I had known this when I was a physics teacher. I could have been such a better teacher. I kept hearing checking for understanding, but I didn't know how to do it. I heard guided practice, but I didn't know how to do it. So I think everyone, everyone we've worked with says, I wish I knew how to do this sooner. That's been just, it's been almost universal. What's your information diet like? Whose work do you find particularly interesting or inspiring? You know, I don't know if you're on Twitter. If, if, if so, do you follow anyone? Are there any books you've found particularly influential? Well, I don't think we're following anyone educationally now. Kind of when we did all our initial research and we read that big research book. Well, let me back up a few things. We've also been in 35,000 classrooms. So most of our research switched several years ago to what we actually saw in the classroom. So when Sylvia got up there and our only corrective feedback was to reteach, we said, wait, we need some strategies to reteach. So we came up with these, what, I'll come back to you, pair share again, two people reteach. So we came up with that to fill that need. The student engagement norms were actually rules for a summer school we started to improve student behavior. <laughs> You're going to read with, you have a tension signal. We're all going to be quiet and face the teacher when we give the, the command, eyes front. It was so, such a stunning success that this, what used to be called student behavior norms, were renamed student engagement norms and have been our most, our most number one thing we do now. So I would say in the last few years, it's everything is, we have modified what we've done from just the number of things we've done. I've told you we've been in 35,000 classrooms. Sylvia and I have taught every grade level and every content. We taught all over Australia. We taught in the United States and our other consultants also. And uh, we just kind of learned it now. It's, I guess you call it action research. Isn't that the correct word? Yeah, sure. Yeah, when you're doing it yourself. 
That's great, and that's that's a, that's a great that's a great information diet to to actually be in classrooms. That makes a lot of sense. But now think of this: we've been in thirty five thousand classrooms, and when we did student analysis to teach on grade level, we collected two million assignments across the United States, and we measured them to the assignment to the grade level, and we found kids were taught two to four grade levels below grade level. It was just an eye opener to us, and the schools had no insight. We walked down and said, "Your sixth graders are getting A's on second grade assignments." They were like stunned. So we did some a lot of original kind of breakthroughs. What are you particularly excited about at the moment, John? For me, it's actually spreading it worldwide. I'm working in other countries. Uh, I'll show you, we've been there many years. Sylvia's son, Joey Barra, goes over there two or three times a year. He stays for four or five weeks. He's training all over Australia right now. The major contract we had over there for the government project is, is wound up. That is still going on with the EDI. I'm trying to do in, in exotic places. I went to China. So when I trained, I think, 1,500 English teachers in China, more students are learning English in China than speak English in the United States. Wow. That's 300 million students. And we got called by a professor, and he'd read our book, Explicit Direct Instruction for English Learners. And he said, we need to improve instruction, our teaching methods. And he was kind of frustrated. We put a lot of work into learning English, and our students are not learning as well as they could have. So we've done work on and off with China. I worked in some other places in the Middle East. You wouldn't think about going to the Middle East, but I've gotten in contact with people there because I think, you know, English is beginning, beginning to become the language everywhere, isn't it? Mm-hmm. It's in Korea. It's in Japan, South Korea, Japan. It's actually a mandated, mandated language in most of the, a lot of Asian countries. It's mandated in China. So I personally like the idea of expanding around to other countries. The people here are training up and down California and around the United States. But uh, my personal thing is to work around the world. The, that's prompted another question from me, actually, John. When you teach teachers to teach EDI, do you teach them using EDI? Oh, that was a breakthrough like many years ago. Like. 15 years ago, we used to drone for six hours with typical PowerPoints and even just read PowerPoints and stuff. One day I had the idea, I'm going to ask a question to the teachers. Then the, the room went silent. If you've been to early tri- kids are reading books, teachers are reading books, they're not paying attention. All of a sudden, like, wow, they had to pay attention. Then we started taking whiteboards out and said, okay, teachers, Tell me what part of TAPL you think could change your teaching. Write the letter, which one would be ready to tell me. The part of TAPL that could change my teaching is, right, whiteboards. Then I had a superintendent run up. At the one-hour mark, he ran out to call DataWorks. He says, when I held up my whiteboard to your teaching, I wanted my students to feel like that, that level of participation, showing my answer. So the EDI, I call it now experiential training. We use full EDI and make the teachers read this stuff off. I know the teachers can read, but I make them read. They use whiteboard, they answer in complete sentences so they can experience what it's like. And it really works. The trainings are fully engaged. Everybody's engaged. So a long time ago, EDI training became EDI. <laughs> That's great. And John, do you have any calls to action or things you'd like listeners to go away today and do? Well, let me give you a heartbreaking thing. Professional development is easy. I can go to any school and like a two-hour or three-hour webinar, a six-hour training. We do it. We've done thousands of trainings. Training is easy. Implementation is very, very difficult. And to a certain sense, the teacher's brains, not the teacher brain, human brains want to work on habits. You can't think of everything all the time. 
And when they say, who knows what this is? I said, wait, we just spent an hour saying you're going to get your sticks and call non-volunteers. And they do who knows. And they don't even know they did it because their brain took over. So the biggest thing, the secret to EDI training really is coaching for implementation. And I've stood with teachers, pair share, pair share, like over and over. And in 30 minutes after I've done it 15 times, they finally say, oh, kids, tell your neighbors what this means. So uh, you want to bring something out of this. Teachers have to change their behaviors. You can't just be aware of what TAPL is. You have to get sticks and use them enough that you're holding your sticks and you're doing. So I would say this is the heartbreak of EDI with Sylvia and me is training is easy. Implementation is a lot of work. And that's why we started doing demo lessons maybe five or 10 years ago. When we do training, we go out and teach you with your own students. Then we have the teacher teach the exact same lesson and we stand next to you and co-teach and cue you how to do it. So it's kind of a three-step. It's what training is first, the, you know, professional development. Then you watch us teach it. And then the next one is you're going to teach it and I'm going to cue you. And we teach the same lesson so we don't have to learn it over and over again. And then how many times you can do that to develop automaticity for the teachers. Teachers know they're going to use sticks and then they forget to use them. But once they rewire their brain, it's just natural and they use it all the time. If people want to find out more about EDI, where, where can they go? Well, you're going to have to put this up someplace. DataWorks website is actually DataWorks dash ed.com so d-a-t-a-w-o-r-k-s hyphen ed.com or you can just search dataworks educational research i'm sure it'll come up educeries are lessons e-d-u-c-e-r-i.com educeri and if you go to it uh, there's probably links on each one of those to go to the other one but uh, search for dataworks there's a lot of companies called dataworks so you're looking for dataworks educational research if you type in explicit direct instruction, you'll come up with DataWorks. If you type EDI, it stands for other things. It's other people have used it in, in electricity and other areas, so that won't work as well. But explicit direct instruction, DataWorks Educational Research, DataWorks-ED.com or Edgesary.com. <laughs> That's where to get it. Wonderful. I think we have a chat line. We have people come in on the chat line quite a bit. And uh, we do have quite a few people in Australia right now that are teaching off of Edgesary. John Hollingsworth, thank you so much for your time today. Um, I've got so much out of this EDI book. As you said, it really operationalizes a lot of the things that I've come across or seen in education research to date, and it boils it down to a really powerful framework. So today we've talked about things like, you know, even deconstructing a learning intention, how to write a learning intention, really valuable tools there, activating prior knowledge. How can I do that in a useful way? Obviously, TAPL as the backbone of EDI, along with all the engagement norms, some of the advice you had with skills development, periodic review, the advice about an easy gateway into EDI is focusing on using existing textbooks and kind of building EDI on top of that as a scaffold for teachers. You know, we talked about some of the ins and outs and I challenged EDI and then that was a, that was a great thing to explore as well. And, and finally, the idea that you actually use EDI to teach EDI I, re I think really kind of provides support for the, the impact and the efficacy of the approach. And if you can use that approach with teachers, they can experience it and then still be excited and be even more excited about it. I think that's a real testament to the approach. So thanks for your time today. Thanks for consolidating all of this education research into this cohesive approach. And we look forward to your work in future. Well, you did a great job of summarizing it. You could give the training yourself now. <laughs> thanks, John. Okay, good night. Bye-bye. Thanks a lot. 
Thank you for joining us for this episode of the EWR podcast with John Hollingsworth. As always, you can find show notes with links to all the resources that were mentioned at ollilovell.com. And if you'd like to help the ERRR podcast to keep on keeping on and receive a concise summary of Hollingsworth and Yabarro's explicit direct instruction, then please go to patreon.com forward slash ERRR to make a small monthly contribution to support the ongoing production of the show. Please share this episode with friends and colleagues if you've got something out of it. And if you've got any suggestions for future guests you'd like to hear on the ERRR podcast, I'd love to hear from you. Or if you've got any questions, comments, thoughts or reflections on this podcast or any other episode, I always welcome contact from listeners via Twitter or email. Thanks for your time and listening today. Have a wonderful week. And until next time, keep learning. This podcast is part of the Australian Educators Online Network, aeon.net.au.